0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson here to tell you a little bit about adfreeshows.com. People often ask me, what exactly is AdFreeShows shows all about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Not only do you get early ad-free access to all of my podcasts, starting at just $9, but you also get many of your other favorite wrestling podcasts, like Click This with Kevin Nash. Gentleman Villain with William Regal. Oh, You Didn't Know with Brian James and others. But yes, still just $9 a month. That's 14 podcasts in total every single week, early, with no ads. That's like 20 cents an episode. And yes, you can listen to them all directly through Apple Podcasts or through your regular podcast apps. How easy is that? Want some more cheese on that Whopper? AdFreeShows.com has literally tens of thousands of hours worth of bonus content, including fantastically popular series like Eric Fires Back, Title Chase, and Strictly Business. And I don't know why this is a thing, but there's even more than 40 Ask Conrad episodes waiting for you at AdFreeShows.com. We've got monthly Zoom chats with all the podcast hosts, live watch-alongs with wrestling legends, and more. Come on now. See for yourself what thousands of other wrestling fans have already discovered. That's AdFreeShows.com is the best value in wrestling today. Check it out right now. AdFreeShows.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Slow
1: rolling today, Conrad. You know, normally in the mornings and the weekend, I, I get up early. I'm all fired up. i got plans. This weekend, I'm just kind of slow rolling. It's taken me a while to get going. I'm, I, Believe it or not, I'm relaxed and I'm
0: chill, which is very, very unusual for Yeah, that is, that is not the normal course of business for Eric Bischoff. I can maybe try to find a way to get you fired up today. No, no, no. I'm kind of digging this vibe. I'm, 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 I'm I'm pretty happy just staying on this canoe and
1: floating along and see how it goes.
0: We're going to have a lot of fun today. We're talking about, and we've been trying to do this episode for weeks. Now it's finally happening. Your 2004 run with WWE, just to catch you up where you are in the storylines at the time. You'd been the general manager for nearly 18 months. As we got to January of 04. most of 03, you were in the co-GM role with stone cold, Steve Austin. Austin was fired in storyline as co-GM after team Bischoff defeated team Austin at the 03 survivor series. Austin then returned on the final raw of 2003 and was now reinstated on his own terms as the sheriff of Monday night, raw before we get going, how much fun were you having as co-GM in 03 with with Austin? That had to be a blast. Most fun
1: I've ever had on camera, full stop. Wow. I mean, it wasn't, look, the the, the scene I did in the ring as the minister and reveal, that was, to me, the, the best quality work I've ever done on camera. And that had everything to do with the writing and everybody else involved and the extent to which WWE was willing to invest in the makeup. And, you know, all of that was that was first-class stuff, and it came off great. But as far as fun, like, what did I look for? That, that was a period of time when, and you know how much I hate to fly now. You know me well enough. I just, man, when I have to go out of town, especially you know, on a weekly basis, you know, I I stare at my suitcase for about three days, go, oh, you fucker, oh, I got to use, oh, I hate you. And then I finally, you know, pack up the night before and I fly out and I do my stuff and then I'd fly home from Monday Night Raw and my suitcase would sit there full for like three days until I had to empty it and do it again. And it would just sit there and I I couldn't touch it. Sometimes I'd leave it in my car because I just didn't. Uh, And I'm still the same way. It's hard. But that period of time when I was working with Steve, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to pack my shit. I couldn't wait to get to the airport. I couldn't wait to find out what it is they wanted me to do that weekend or that Monday night because working with Steve was just a blast. So much fun. And I think a lot of that, Conrad, had to do with the fact that Steve Austin was Steve Austin. Yeah. And... Once we kind of got an idea where we were going, he and I could just say, okay, this is what they want us to do. You see it. I see it. Okay, let's go out and have some fun. You know, you didn't get a chance to do that with a lot of other talent. Everybody else was more scrutinized. Steve had a lot of latitude. And I was a beneficiary of that. And that's why it was so much fun.
0: Well, of course, now here we are. Uh, You and Austin are going to continue the feud. Uh, You're going to start making matches, he's going to overrule them Uh, the dynamic between you guys was just so, so good. Were you surprised given your challenging history that the on-air chemistry was as good as it was?
1: No, no. You know, when I, first of all, a lot of the, I mean, I did fire Steve by FedEx. That's true. And if you go back and listen to Steve's podcast that I did with him many years ago, Steve admitted on his podcast that, yeah, he probably would have fired him too under the same circumstances that I did. So there was no real heat, probably a little resentment, maybe more than anything on Steve's part. I don't know. I'm not speaking for Steve, but, you know, of course, Steve being a smart professional wrestler, he took that incident and built it into something else and created heat with it and helped him, you know, with some, he had some great promos in ECW, you know, dressed up like me and wearing a wig and a black leather jacket and making fun of me, doing parodies and things like that. He used it, which is great. Yeah. So I think, I think that the perceived heat was far greater than any real heat between Steve and I. And that became crystal clear to me when Bruce Pritchard and I went to some little middle of nowhere town in Bandera. Bandera, Texas. That's where it was. And we went there to film that infamous scene when I was out there looking for Steve Austin, trying to find him, and ended up getting, you know beating up some guy in a bar and all that silliness. Well, before we actually shot any of that footage, Steve came. Now, I hadn't seen Steve since whenever it was I fired him, whatever year that was, 94, 95, I can't remember. Um, but Steve came down to the bar where we were shooting that scene about an hour before we were really ready to shoot it. And Steve just pulled me over to the side. said, come on, man. I want to, let's, let's talk for a minute. And like within about three minutes, we were both heading to the bar for a beer to toast each other. I mean, it was, it was great from the very beginning. I didn't know as as great as we hit it off after we reconnected and, you know, everybody made sure nobody had any hard feelings. You know, like I said, that took about three minutes and that checked that box. But even then, I didn't know that it would be as much fun working with Steve as it was because I didn't, I hadn't worked with Steve. You know, well, the last time I saw Steve was in WCW and I wasn't in the kind of role that I was in in WWE. So I never really worked with Steve other than doing interviews. And you don't really get a sense for anybody that not, not a real sense. But man, was that a blast. So much fun. But I wasn't surprised the chemistry was good.
0: At the Royal Rumble in Philadelphia, you and the SmackDown GM, Paul Heyman, get into maybe a silly tussle in the ring after both of you declare that you run the superior brand. And of course that leads to Austin coming out and gives you both the stunner. Is there a, what's your, what's your best practice for taking a stunner? How can one take the best stunner?
1: I I don't want to, I wouldn't give anybody else advice. Um, for me, it was just to be completely relaxed, just physically just almost limp, you know, just because the minute you, for me, the minute I started anticipating or thinking about how I was going to sell it, you, my body would start to tense up. And I wasn't as relaxed as, as I think you need to be. Cause that, you know, that's, it's a, it's a very simple bump, right? It's not hard at all. It's very, very easy. I think it only becomes awkward and looks awkward when you try too hard. Right. So for me, it was just like, as soon as he, as soon as he spins and grabs me, I just, I just went with it. And I think just remembering to relax was the toughest part of that. Because when you're up there in front of, you know, five, 10, 15, 20,000 people, it's easy to kind of get tensed up. A little bit. Your adrenaline's going, you know, you're excited. So subconsciously, you don't even know it, but you're starting to tense up just remembering to relax is probably the most difficult part of taking that pump.
0: Let's talk a little bit about February of 2004. There's a big show held in uh, Japan at the super arena at the time. This is the seventh largest gate in WWE history, which tells you just the, the scope and scale of how big this show was. Any chance you remember this 2004 trip to Japan? It feels like a big one.
1: God, I don't, man. I mean, if, if, if some things pop up in research that remind me of it, I'm, I probably will. But as you were saying that, I'm thinking, did I ever even go to Japan with WWE? I know I've been there dozens of times, but I don't recall going there with WWE, but I'm sure I did.
0: By and large, your trips to, to Japan, to the best of your recollection, those were under the WCW New Japan working relationship? Circumstances.
1: Yeah, primary the, the vast majority of them were with new Japan but I did go over I did uh play by play and color uh on a k1 event I don't know when that was I don't know what year it was 97 maybe 98 I don't recall but I, I did I was invited over there a couple times by uh, uh I think his name is kanjo Ishi Ishi is the guy that used to run k1 until he got indicted and thrown in jail. Um, But he brought me over several times, and then I've gone over on my own a couple times. But the vast, see, I'm coming to life. The coffee's kicking in. Fuck, I thought I was going to be relaxed, and here I go. Uh, The vast majority of my trips to Japan were because of the, or as a result of the relationship with New Japan.
0: Well, this show here in Japan, February 7th, it has 20,002 folks here completely sold out. The show goes four hours and 15 minutes. Uh, and it's a little long because there's even a half hour in ring segment with you and Steve Austin, Austin's going to hit you with a stunner. And then of course you're going to be attacked by Randy Orton and Matt Hardy. Everybody catches a stunner. There's some sumo legends there in attendance. The main event is triple H and Shawn Michaels, uh, going 26 minutes. Really long match with Benoit and Jericho that went 21 minutes. Batista and Flair were in there with the Dudley boys for 24 minutes. Molly Holly uh, was in there with Lita for 18 minutes. So lots of long matches on this program. But
1: I wonder why that was, Conrad. I wonder, and I'm asking you. I mean, this is a rhetorical question. I wouldn't expect you to have the answer, but then again, it's you, and maybe you do. I wonder if the psychology going over there for a WWE live event was to kind of Format the show similarly to what the Japanese audience is used to seeing, which would have been longer matches.
0: I bet it. I mean, the first match, let's go in order. Hurricane and Christian, 13 minutes, 21 seconds. Randy Orton and Matt Hardy, 14 minutes, 38 seconds. Molly Holling and Lita, 1724. See, that's weird. Flair and Batista with the Dudleys, 2457. Makes sense. Jericho and Benoit, 21 minutes, 46 seconds. Kane and Rob Van Dam, 1045 Rico and test eight twenty seven, And then Shawn Michaels, triple H world title, 26 minutes. It's just yeah. interesting to think about what a special show this is. I mean, anytime you got 20,000 people watching wrestling, big damn deal. Um, I guess it's worth mentioning Shane and Marissa had their first baby literally the day before. Declan James McMahon, who's now a college football standout, literally born the ne- the day before, uh, as, as the company was uh, running a show in Osaka. And then this big show here at the super arena. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The pace that's happening. And even in Oh four, which I would have thought in hindsight was a down year. There's still money to be made somewhere happened to be in Japan that day.
1: Now it clicked when you mentioned Osaka. That's what clicked because I had not been to Osaka before. If I did, I didn't, it, it was just like a quick in and out with new Japan. Um, but I remember now on that trip, I actually visited Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Wow. For the first time and all the trips that I had made to Japan previously, I never really had the time to do any, just, just by myself or, you know, in the case my wife's with me, N- not a lot of time just to do some freelance, um, looking around and shit, you know? And I remember I had some time and I went to, uh, Hiroshima and to, uh, Nagasaki and it was just amazing. That's what I remember about that trip.
0: Let's keep it rolling here. Um, you're doing these segments on a lot of these big shows, you and Austin, uh, lots of fun segments, lots of beers being drank. Of course, there's stunners all around. Um, 2004 is interesting because it feels like once upon a time, You mostly just worked television, but you're doing more live events here. Can you remember that process? Was it a big discussion? Was there just some extra cheese on your Whopper or how did that come to be where they thought, or is it more a function of, Hey man, they need to find a way to get Austin on these shows. And I'm sort of the necessary evil. I'm the foil in that circumstance. So let's go do it. Is that it?
1: No, I do remember the conversation
0: and, uh, it was with
1: Stephanie at the time. And Stephanie just came to me and said, Hey, Eric, uh, look, we're, we're going to try something on the non-televised live events, house shows, if you will. Um, and we want to see more of the same characters that we see on TV in the house shows. And I understood that cause I was, I was challenged with that same problem as well. You know, when you go back and you look at Hulk Hogan and, and, you know, the limited schedule that he had and, you know, It was real clear. He wasn't going to do house shows when he first came in. Right. Um, so you've got all of your creative focus on one of your big top stars. That's drawing your ratings, drawing your pay-per-views, selling merch, all that. But that talent isn't available for your live events. And it's, it's been a challenge. It's one of the biggest challenges in wrestling live events. There are, it's funny because you and I were just talking about this offline before we started the show. Um, you know, live events are great. It has historically been kind of the financial backbone of the professional wrestling industry before television licensing and pay-per-view and all of that. But what's happened, I think over the last, especially the last 25 years is the quality of the television product is so phenomenal from a production value you know, perspective in WWE and, and in AEW, you know, you get a lot visually on television that you just don't get when you go to a non-televised live event or a house show. So the the challenge has always been, what do we do in these house shows to feel like those fans that are paying money to come and watch us live are getting something that they might not get on television or at the very least give them something That's similar as much as you can. I mean, you've got the wrestlers and the talent, but you don't have the pyro. Most of the time, you don't have the lighting, you know, a lot of things you don't have. And Stephanie's point was, you know, you're in our main story on TV. We need to get you in, and not just me, but others that were in that kind of part-time role. Uh, We need to get you in those house shows. And I made sense to me. I didn't ask for any additional money. It wasn't a part of my contract, but I'm kind of a, um, I'm a real loyal person by nature, yeah. And 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 once I'm on the team, I'm on the fucking team. If Stephanie would have said, "Hey, we need you to, uh, you know, you know more about catering than anybody in this
0: company <laughs> because you more time there." So
1: maybe uh, maybe you'd consider, you know, kind of uh, overseeing the catering, you know, while we're sure I'll do that. I don't care. I'm on the team, man. It didn't matter to me. I I have no ego. I had no ego or or pride issues back then, and I wasn't wasn't really doing it as much for the money as I was to put a a period at the end of my wrestling sentence that was positive. So I said, "Yeah, I'll do it," and it didn't last long. You know, they did it for a couple months or maybe I don't know, six months or so, and then all of a sudden they kind of phased that out too. So
0: I. Uh... I, I chuckle. You have such a good sense of humor about the catering thing. I saw that, um, the, 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 biggest independent promotion out there these days, game changer, wrestling ran a show not too long ago and they had their different signs in their backstage area. Like you would at a, at a WWE show, you know, gorillas that way. Makeup is that way. Well, they had a sign that said catering and it was just your picture. <laughs> and I thought, boy, that's funny. That's good stuff. (laughs) That is funny. That is funny. Uh, February 23rd, we've got raw in Omaha. You and Vince have a short match described as bowling shoe. Ugly by Jr on commentary. Austin is the referee and it ends abruptly when Brock Lesnar comes out and hits the F five on Austin. And the match was set up after Austin had tricked you into bad mouthing Vince When you didn't realize he was standing behind you. And that you could easily kick his ass like you did for another 83 weeks and that you were about 25 years younger than the grandfather Vince. So this feels like a little old school fun that you could have had fun with. What was it like being in the ring with Vince? Like he's not a traditional in-ring performer. You were previously rivals these days. I guess your employer employee, or in those days rather. But that had to just feel kind of electric from a nostalgic standpoint, right? It was cool. I, I I'm going to be really honest with you. I knew what it was going
1: in, and I knew it wasn't going to last long. I knew there wasn't a there wasn't much to it. Certainly no build up to it, really. So I I was happy to do it. I was excited to do it. Um, just because it was Vince and I and Austin. You got Brock. I mean, <laughs> come on doesn't get much better than that at that point in time. And it was fun just to be a part of that. I really wished. So one thing I I don't want to say regret, it's not the right word, but it would have been interesting, especially early on, if there would have been some kind of conflict between Vince and I to kind of put a period at the end of that story and build it up and do something fun. You know, we touched on it a couple of times. This is one example, but never really went the distance with it, which is, I guess a missed opportunity. And you know how I feel about missed opportunities. I almost get angry at them.
0: I don't know that it would have made sense for a WrestleMania maybe, but it certainly would no. have been a big deal for a SummerSlam or a Royal Rumble, something like that. Um, no, it
1: would have it definitely not for WrestleMania, but well, certainly for a, a pay-per-view or nothing else. Just build it up for three or four weeks for TV. That would have been a fun
0: TV thing to do. Let's not say definitely not WrestleMania. They did Hogan and Vince at WrestleMania. Yeah, but it's hogan and it's vince it's not bischoff bischoff can't wrestle
1: all bischoff can do is take an ass kicking i am fucking durable if not talented
0: and you know why you are it's because you get a good night's sleep and science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature temperature controlled sleep will repair your muscles after a hard day's work and improve cognitive function so you always start your day feeling sharp and alert Chili Sleep makes customizable climate controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well being. Chili Sleep makes the Uller and Cube Sleep Systems. These are hydropower temperature controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing mattress to provide you your ideal sleep temperature. These luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. These sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Well, chili sleep can make that happen for an extra layer of comfort. They also make the chili blanket, the only weighted blanket that can also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. And guys, I've told the story before, but it's worth repeating prior to chili sleep. I did not dream. I wasn't getting that deep rim sleep. Now I have bright, vivid, colorful dreams and hell I'm colorblind, but I'm sleeping better than ever. I'm not tossing and turning. I'm not fidgeting with the covers. And what's great is my side of the bed can be a different temperature than my wife's side. She likes to climb into a warm bed, but then cool her off so she doesn't get all hot and sweaty, but then warm her up to wake her up. Not me. I want to stay cold all night long. And I do, and I'm sleeping better than ever. I can't stress this enough. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Imagine not having that after lunch, early afternoon crash my life and my quality of my life and my productivity is better than ever. Thanks to chili sleep head over right now to chillysleepcom forward slash 83 weeks to learn more and save 30% off the purchase of any new cube or sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for 83 weeks listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili C H I L I sleep.com slash 83 weeks to take advantage of our discount and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Can I tell you a quick chilly sleep
1: story? Please do. Not really a story, but just a testimonial. <clears throat> True story here. It's been hot as hell here in Wyoming for the last couple of weeks, as it has around the country. Typically here where I live, because we're up high in the mountains at altitude of about 5,500 feet, typically in the evenings, it gets down to 55 or 60 at night. So when we built our house here, I didn't put in air conditioning. I thought, what do we need air conditioning for? Let's do a really good job insulating the house. At night, we open the windows, let all that cold air in, we get up, we close the windows, and the house stays cool all day. That works about 98% of the time throughout the entire summer. No need for air conditioning. Wonderful, right? Well, the 2% came around this summer. It got (laughs) hot, like really hot, and stayed hot all day. No air conditioning. Slept like a baby chili sleep. It, had it not been for chili sleep. Both Mrs. B and I would have been up all night sweating. Neither one of us would have been to sleep. It was just too uncomfortable, but with chili sleep, we both just boom, went out. Like we were shot, woke up, felt great. Didn't bother us a bit. Chili sleep. We love you.
0: Check it out. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. I do too. I was just at dinner last night with some friends of ours. I'll tell you who after. And, uh, They said, Hey man, is that chili sleep thing for real? And I did a whole commercial right there at Ruth's Chris in downtown Huntsville and felt bad for doing it, but I was so passionate about it. I love it. I believe it as folks are listening to this. I am out of town on the beach and guess what? The chili sleep is with me. I traveled with it. You're going to love it. Check it out. Uh, so listen, let's jump back into it here. WWE releases a Monday night war documentary style DVD in February of Oh four. And this is really the first real in-depth piece about the whole Monday night war and the WWF WCW war. And it was a hot seller as a result. Um, what'd you think of this? I mean, this is really the first time we really understood, boy, I don't mean for this to sound the way it does, but WWE well. To the victor go the spoils. Let's just say that because <laughs> it doesn't feel as if it was very objective and it was certainly the story was told with a slant. Uh, you had to be a little surprised by the narrative or were you? No, I wasn't at all.
1: Hell, I was a part of it.
0: Yeah. I, I compromise
1: a fair amount of, the. Of, I mean, when I say compromise, I didn't lie. I didn't distort, but I certainly didn't. I didn't approach it the way I would this podcast right. or debate. I was a company guy. I was being paid to perform. And I was as honest as I could be, but I was mindful of who I was working for. right. And so did, so was everybody else on, you know, I see that thing, you know, I see it running in the background sometimes, you know, if I'm doing an appearance somewhere um, and I listen to some of those interviews with some of that talent, including me, and I'm going. He's fucking clouds. He "Come on, man. Just come on. Be real." But that was not a time when WWE was interested in being real, yeah, being honest, and being transparent. That was a that where they were still in the very very much in the WWE brand building frame of mind in saying anything detrimental or that didn't fit the narrative. Quite honestly, yeah, WWE wanted was probably not a good career move. So I went along with it just like everybody else did. I think everybody else probably got a bigger kick out of it, but, uh, yeah, I was, uh, no, I wasn't surprised. I was a little disappointed, but not too much because I I did the same thing.
0: Let's, uh, let's talk about that another day. Next week on raw, we see. What's going to be Johnny nitro, Johnny Mundo, Johnny impact, Johnny elite, John Hennigan comes up and starts sucking up to you and you make him your apprentice at first. He's given the name Johnny blaze. Then the next week it's Johnny Spade. And then later they decided on Johnny nitro. We don't talk a lot about Johnny here. I I think the first time I saw him was on the reality show. What was your experience working with Johnny? I love working with John. All right. And he's a guy,
1: I don't understand why he hasn't progressed further. I mean, he's had a great career. Don't don't get me wrong. I don't sound like any of us should feel sorry for him. He's made a lot of money in this industry. He stayed healthy. Um, He's done other things outside of wrestling as a result of his experience in wrestling. So he's had a successful career, but he's such a talented guy. And he's as telegenic as you can get. He's right out of central casting. His physical abilities are phenomenal. He's in great shape. He's able to do things that, you know, a lot of guys, many people can't do in the ring because he is in such great shape. Uh, And he's this easy person to work with creatively. I mean, he's just easy and he gets it. He understands. So I'm not really quite sure why he hasn't made a bigger name for himself than than he has has all the tools do you think it's just timing no I think look I don't want to suggest that I I, I know Johnny well I know Johnny pretty pretty well from a professional perspective um you know there's a fine line between pushing too hard and not pushing enough and I think Johnny might have been one of he might have fallen into that latter ladder carrot category. He pushed Very too easy much. Guy to get along with. Yeah. Maybe too easy. Maybe didn't squeak enough when he needed to, as the wheels were kind of in motion. I don't know.
0: Well, I think we all agree listening to this. I mean, what a, what a star, what a look, what a performer, but yeah, I mean, I think we would have all liked to have seen him. this main event of summer slam or, or something. Um, have you ever spent time talking to him? I've never met him in real life. He's Super one of the one of the few guys a, I've not been able to connect with.
1: easy to talk to, he's sincere, he's real, and he, he's just a nice guy. I I maybe too nice. Maybe that's the answer. He's too nice a guy. Johnny call me. I'll fix you right up. I'll give you a little bit of give you a little dose of Bischoff heat.
0: Well, you know how to teach people how to be dicks, that's for sure. Uh, let's jump into a small cameo backstage. You're going to be at the historic WrestleMania 20 at Madison square garden, but it's just you and a little backstage skit with coachman. You were a big part of the program. And now for whatever reason on this show, not really figured in, I know it's disappointing to in ring talent. Does Eric Bischoff get disappointed if he's not on WrestleMania 20 in a bigger way, or are you kind of over that at that point? I, it would have never occurred to
1: me to be disappointed. I I just, I was garnish man. I was, I was that green shit they put on your plate to make the plate look better. WrestleMania is a main course. Um, I wouldn't have put me in on WrestleMania. Maybe, you know, if, if, and I don't remember the scene that we did backstage with coach, but I remember being, I I barely remember being in New York for that WrestleMania. Thanks to our, mutual friend Bruce Pritchard and his decision to bring me a bottle of absinthe.
0: Oh, there you go. From
1: Europe. Now the stuff,
0: the real deal stuff,
1: the real deal stuff that's illegal here. So much of that weekend just evaporated into absinthe hell. Um, but I do remember that, Look, a character like a general manager, in my own opinion, I wouldn't have put on, on camera at WrestleMania unless there was some serious physicality and it delivered something that the audience was looking forward to seeing. Otherwise it's just taking a valuable time. So no, I wasn't disappointed at all.
0: on March 22nd, uh, raw is held in Detroit and it's the first draft lottery since the original brand extension two years before. And it's actually the highest rated raw since April of Oh two. So this draft idea was a hit here in Oh four. You and Paul Heyman are all over the show. Keep having to go out to the podium at the top of the entrance ramp to keep making the random picks and react accordingly. And on the last pick you draft Paul Heyman to raw and Heyman immediately quits instead of working for you. Do you remember this segment, this skit that had to be pretty fun?
1: Sure. It was Paul's another guy like Steve Austin in the sense that Paul probably didn't, Paul didn't have as much latitude as Steve did, but he had latitude. He wasn't as scrutinized. Nobody wanted to hear Paul deliver a promo word for word exactly the way it was scripted for him. But Paul, man, when it comes to improv and believability, and just, it's, I can't describe it. it. I guess I don't dance, you know, like tangos and waltzes and like formal dancing shit. I don't do it. Never have. But I would imagine it's like once you have a really, really good dance partner and you can almost do no wrong and everything just flows and is natural. That's what it's like working with Paul Heyman, you know, on on the mic. He's, he's that exceptional.
0: Let's um, let's talk about the reports at the time. It was reported that a lot of the talent didn't know they were switching brands until it was announced on TV or they saw it on the internet. Were you in the dark? Were you told you'd be staying on Raw? I mean, what do you remember about this? Because I mean, once upon a time, they even did this to Jr., where he found out he was switching shows live on the show. That's I
1: I, I knew nothing. Okay. I had and I didn't want to know anything. Right. <laughs> That's what's different. One of the things that I guess is a little different about me. And again, I look at myself as a talent differently than wrestling talent would, right? I'm not on the road 300 days a year. I'm on the road. Well, I'm scheduled for TV 52 times a year or throwing another six or eight for pay-per-view, say 60 times a year on average. So my time isn't, I was more flexible. But if you're a wrestling talent, you've got a life, you've got a wife, you've got a husband, you've got kids, you've got dogs, you've got whatever. Um, You kind of like to know what your schedule is. So I could see why wrestling talent would like to get a little bit of a heads life, if, heads up, if their wife is and their schedule is going to change dramatically. But I, I didn't really care; it, it didn't matter to me. And I also have learned over the years, uh, and had certainly by that point, that the less you know, the better, for me, because I would never want anybody to think for a second that I compromised information or talked about things that I shouldn't have been talking about or somehow intentionally or otherwise leaked a creative direction. So it's like, cause that should happen, man. I remember, you know, there used to be meetings occasionally, not all the time, but there were times when I remember one in particular where Vince McMahon called a talent meeting and just read everybody, the riot act for talking about creative outside of you know the room necessary to discuss it. I never wanted to be. I never want anybody to look at me and go, "Huh, I wonder if Eric leaked that." It's mm. Just like, fuck, don't tell me shit, man. Just give it to me twenty minutes before I'm going out to the ring, and I'm good. I don't need a lot of time. Just don't tell me anything, and then wonder if I'm the one that leaked it. So, it I would have preferred not to know.
0: On the April fifth Raw in Houston, you tell William Regal about a new special talent you want him to manage. It's your nephew Eugene Dinsmore. His character was, of course, to portray someone who was uh, mentally challenged, but gifted as a wrestler who could copy his wrestling heroes in the ring. And famously, there's a story that he was actually based on a real guy who used to attend the matches maybe back in the 80s and was friends with a lot of the boys. And it's become a rather controversial topic in years since. You were there. In the middle of this, what did you think of the creative when you heard about it at the time here in 2004? I was underwhelmed with the idea. I want to make
1: it clear that I'm a little bit embarrassed. I wasn't more sensitive to the issue because, well, I just wasn't. I should have been more concerned about it than I was. I'm proud to say that, but it is what it is. So, putting that issue aside because it wasn't one. Um, just the the basics. It was a comedy act at its core. It was meant to be lighthearted, entertaining, yes, non serious, nothing dangerous about it. Um, Character, an angle. <sighs> it's hard for me to get excited about stories or angles or characters like that, just on a personal level. If there's not some risk for somebody, you know, getting their ass kicked seriously or real and believable and emotional story with with a, with a character. And it's really hard for me to get excited about it. So I, I, I just did it. I, you know, I said, okay, I, I know how to do this. I know, I know how to make this work. But I, was, I wasn't excited about it. And as I said a few moments ago, as embarrassed as I am to say it, I wasn't offended by it either, even though I should have been.
0: It's uh, something that they're What do you gonna, think? I mean, listen, at, at the time, I wasn't watching wrestling as much as, you know, I had in the past. But I thought that the performer. Playing the character did a fantastic job.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not make any mistake here. If I was in any way implied, otherwise I'm sorry.
0: No, you didn't. I just, I mean, listen, he's in a tough spot too. I mean, the real life Nick Dinsmore has probably aspired his whole life to be a WWE television wrestler. And now he's given the opportunity and it's with some creative that a lot of folks, Wouldn't be able to pull off candidly. And it's probably not the dream creative he hoped for or wanted, but that was his job and he did his job and I thought he did it fabulously. And I thought the result was we were getting some, some good segments and some entertaining segments. They certainly created some scenarios that were good television, I suppose. But even then I thought is this supposed to be empowering? Is this supposed to be representation or is this really just awful exploitation? But I didn't give it any further thought. And now with the benefit of hindsight, because it's always 2020. And you're older now. You look at the world differently. Yes. And now I think, "Mm, wish we had that one back. Wish that, that one wouldn't have happened. But at the same time. I'm glad it gave Mr. Dinsmore an opportunity to live his dream, even if it wasn't maybe the kind of dream he hoped for.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. And I, and I'm not really not shilling my book, but I kind of am in my new book that's coming out in November. Grateful. I talk about one of the things that's the kind of constant thread throughout the book is it really covers my life from 2000, you know, wrestling life, 2006 to, to current with a real focus, yes, the wrestling st- stuff that was in a lot of what we talk about here, but the last five or six years of my life, maybe seven have been probably some of the most exciting times of my life. sometimes in a bad way, but other times in a good way. But one of the things I've learned as a result of what I went through in wrestling, not only over the last you know 15 years, but even prior is that what we did on television had an amazing impact on people, not only just not the obvious to entertain and get them excited and get them to buy tickets and pay per views. Yeah, all that. But I've learned, especially over the last five or seven years, in meeting wrestling fans at conventions and autograph signings and even just, say, you know, at StarCast, talking to people that I either have never talked to before or haven't talked to in a long time. That the things that you do on television, when you have an audience that's as loyal and passionate about your product as they are, you can do things that either really positively impact people and you can do things that hurt people and you don't really realize you're doing it. Because in the context of what you're doing in television, it's entertaining and all that's heat, this, and that, blah, 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 blah. But what you don't understand is I didn't understand. I'll speak for myself. What I didn't understand is that a lot of those things that we did on television impacted people, the audience in ways that I would have never anticipated at that time. And now that's why, when I think back about that character, it's like how many parents that had kids with learning disabilities that liked wrestling and, and that, that child liked wrestling, but here we are having fun with that. And at, even now talking about it kind of bothers me a little bit that I was a part of that, but you know, we all learn, we move on.
0: Yeah. Listen, we're all trying to, you know, be better and do better. And, um, I don't think we'd see a character like this again. Uh, of course, Regal at first resents the idea of managing Eugene, but slowly warms up to him. Uh, as in the storyline, you say you brought Eugene in as a favor to your sister. But now you're trying to humiliate him where possible and force him to leave. Well You know what's funny, Conrad? I'm sorry to interrupt you, bro. But interesting point.
1: My real nephew, his name is Ben, is six 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 seven? Three twenty-five. It's big boy. That's my real nephew. Yeah. So I'm out here on television. <laughs> <laughs> with Eugene, who's a big guy, by the way, and a very, very talented Nick Dinsmore. Extremely talented dude from a wrestling perspective. And I'm saying, oh, this is my sister's son when my sister's real son, Ben, was probably the guy that should have been in the ring. He looked more like a wrestler. Sorry, Nick.
0: True. Um You're using the backlash match between Mick Foley and Randy Orton. We just recently talked about this with Mick over at his new podcast, Foley is Pod. And you come out to stop Mick from lighting a baseball bat on fire. That's kind of a a neat little twist to a match. Don't you think? I mean, who even thinks to light a baseball bat on fire?
1: Yeah. Why would you need to do that? Oh, I get it for TV. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What can we do to make this baseball bat dangerous? All right. Let's wrap it in barbed wire. Okay. That's good. We need more. What do we do? (gasps) Dip it in kerosene, set it on fire. All right. That's pretty good. We could make that happen. But you've got fire codes and things like that in a lot of these arenas. So setting things on fire was something that you had to pre-plan like weeks in advance. Got to, to have to get the fire marshal to come in and sign on. depending on where you're at. Some buildings don't care. But typically the bigger the building, the more they care.
0: <laughs> so. in, in Nashville, you'd have to have that 10 days ahead of time. Uh of course we're talking about fire and these days when you and I are talking about fire we're talking about Rectech. Guys, we absolutely love our Rectech. If you follow Eric on social media, you probably see it every single weekend. Uh we both are sold on Rectech, an amazing company that offers wood pellet grills fueled by all natural hardwood pellets along with other outdoor lifestyle products such as coolers, apparel, grill accessories and more, with grills ranging from 399 and up. Rectech has grills for every lifestyle, every budget but they all have a key focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility. By the way, their factory direct pricing eliminates the middleman, which means you save a boatload of cash, and they even ship these grills to you for free, all of them. Plus, all Rectech pellet grills are made with high-quality stainless steel. They're built to last a lifetime, and I got to admit, I had a different type of pellet smoker before this one. And uh Eric was the first to join the Rectech family, saw my puny rig and made fun of it. When I finally got the RecTech and put it side by side, holy cow, the difference! You can feel the quality in your hand, the heft, the weight, the durability, the quality of construction. I'm talking about RecTech's Rec flagship model, the RT700. Comes with a 40-pound pellet hopper, which means it's convenient, which means it's going to last a long time before you have to go refill more pellets. 702 square inches of cooking space, which means you can cook for the whole damn family and the neighbors' family. The PID Wi Fi controller, which, by the way, in my opinion, is the best in the industry. I had a Wi Fi controller before. I couldn't turn my grill on. I couldn't adjust my temperature. I can do it all now from my freaking phone. Eric could be at my house and turn his grill on in Wyoming. I don't even know how that works. It's voodoo magic from RecTech. But they've got a six year bumper to bumper warranty. Think about that. Everything on this dude is covered for six years, and you can bake. Yes, bake. Uh, Megan has actually baked on the grill. That's a real sentence. I have smoked. I can't tell you how many meats on the grill. I have seared steaks. I have grilled, I haven't dehydrated yet, but they tell me I can even do that too, all with the push of a button. And that's why those in the know choose Rectech. So toss that tasteless gas grill aside. It sucks. And you know, it get rid of the messy charcoal grill and throw out that overhyped brand name grill. Let's join the elite wood pellet grilling family. Let's focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility because that's where RecTech has set the new standard in grilling. Visit rectech.com. That's R E C T E Q. Use that code Bischoff 5 to say 5% off site wide. Let me explain that's 5% off their top notch wood pellet grills, 5% off their one of a kind RecTech icer coolers, 5% off their chef tested rubs and sauces, 5% off the accessories, the merchandise. Everything is 5% off at rectech.com. When you use the promo code Bischoff5, that's R-E-C-T-E-Q.com. We can't say enough good things about Rec Tech, can we, dude?
1: Well, let me tell you, this past week I had a crew from WWE out to my house. There was four of them uh, out to my house for two days uh, filming some things for, um, I'm not going to say, but they were out here for two days. And on the last day we got done with all of our shots. Cause we were shooting in and around the, the Cody area. And I went up fly fishing and all that kind of stuff. And I said, look guys, you know, we've been working our butts off. I got a treat for you tonight. I'm cooking steaks. So I ordered some half Wagyu, half Angus for my buddies over at Wyoming legacy meats. You're going to be hearing much more about them in the future here on all of our podcasts. you ready for that. I'm ready. Um, and I, I reverse seared some steaks out on the rec tech, but I put some smoke on them first. So I put them on that grill at about 225 degrees, which is the extreme smoke kind of temperature smoked them up, got them up to about 121 degrees internal temperature, 122. And then I seared them on the rec tech. And I told these guys, I said, look, this is going to be the best. They're, they're all from like New York, right? They're East Coast guys, used to expensive, fancy steakhouses. I said, this is going to be different, guys. I, I'm telling you, I, you brag about all the great food you have in New York. I get it. I hear it all the time. I've experienced it. But you're never going to experience a steak like this. You're just not. And, of course, they looked to be like, uh, What do you know? You're out here in the middle of nowhere. Eh. I delivered. Mrs. B made a chimichurri sauce that she's really perfected. And I took those reverse seared, slightly smoked tenderloins, put a little bit of that chimichurri sauce on it, and a little side dish of quinoa, raspberries, a bunch of other things that Mrs. B made. And it was the best steak they've ever had. Thank you, Rectic. You made me look like a grilling god.
0: Check it out. Rectech.com. bishell 5 is going to save you some cash. Woo Wings, a virtual restaurant concept
1: from the man himself, the nature boy, Ric Flair. Enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with your Uber Eats or Postmates app woo wings is now open in nashville san antonio jacksonville florida as well as huntsville and tuscaloosa in alabama with many more locations coming soon try the only chicken wings worthy of carrying the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion tell them nate woo wings legendary flavors world championship wings woo
2: woo wings yeah woo woo
0: Let's talk about it. You're back in May overseas again to a tour of the UK. It shows in Dublin, Manchester, Birmingham, Birmingham. This time you're not doing sets with, uh, Austin. You're doing segments with, uh, Eugene Regal and others. And on the second Dublin show of the tour on May 27th, it turns out it's your 49th birthday. So Stacy Keebler shoves your face into a cake. Tell us about this story. There's gotta be a fun cake story in here.
1: No, there's nothing fun about it.
0: Did you know it was coming? Part of the skit, yeah. or they surprised you with it and ta da. No, I knew it was coming. Um
1: I could have thought of a lot more fun things they could have done for me on my birthday with Stacy Keibler. Let me just put it out there.
0: I don't want to hear you say her name ever again, knowing that you talked her out of doing Playboy. Like your your Stacy Keebler privileges are revoked on this show. Okay.
1: <laughs> i'm kind of pissed off on myself about it actually
0: listen yeah i mean i know there's should we have done the finger poke of doom should we have ended goldberg streak the biggest fumble of all time there it is uh the end yeah, of june in, in, in
1: seriousness because i know I, I still get a lot of heat from that occasionally but you know stacy came to me and she wanted my opinion
0: No, listen, you did her solid. I'm just being a dickhead. Yeah.
1: It's like, okay, how's your dad going to handle it? I'm not going to bother you at all. How's your dad going to handle it? Because he still goes to work every day. And then she went, oh, yeah, you're right. That was the end of it. What was I supposed to say? Sure, baby. I can't wait to get a look at those legs.
0: Oh, you can't say that now. No. So end of June, Ric Flair's autobiography is released. And in it, he talks about the negative relationship between the two of you back in WCW and the little scuffle you had a year earlier backstage at a Monday night raw taping. Was everything water under the bridge? As far as you knew by the summer of 04?
1: Was that after our scuffle? I thought so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, you know, me and time. Um, look, I, I had no issue with Ricky 10 minutes after it happened. Yeah. So, the whole thing was confusing and I didn't read whatever Rick wrote in his book. Cause I saw enough excerpts from that book to make me realize it wasn't worth reading. Sorry, Mark Madden, Or whoever your Rick's writer was, but
0: it was Mark there, was so,
1: there was so much that was distorted. And I mean, it was from Rick's point of view. I'm not criticizing Mark or anybody. And Rick remembers things the way he remembered things. So I, I didn't take offense to any of it, but I didn't read it either. Um, that whole situation with Rick and I was just the most bizarre situation I think I've ever been in. Um, I don't know if you want to recap it here, but for me to answer your question, I didn't, I was fine with the 10 minutes after it happened.
0: The July 31st edition of the torch gave us this news. Eric Bischoff is producing an event called Sturgis 2004 at full throttle on pay-per-view. The in-demand website states, quote, get ready to experience the hottest, loudest, sexiest motorcycle event on the planet, uncensored and untamed as half a million riders soar into Sturgis, South Dakota for a full throttle celebration of life, liberty, and the pursuit of hog happiness. See what really goes on at this legendary rally. Um, tell us how this came to be. And do you remember ever even discussing WWE involvement at this Sturgis opportunity.
1: No, no, I, did, I didn't want to bring WWE into it. Um, how did it come about? You know, I had having, you know, produced, I think, three or four pay-per-views out of Sturgis. I had a good relationship with the local community, the mayor, law enforcement, um, city council, because I had to work closely with them during that period of time. So I had a good relationship with them. I had met certain people in and around the Sturgis area, you know, bar owners. And when I say a bar owner, there's certain like the Full Throttle, for example. That's on acres and acres of property. People camp there. Buffalo Chip is another big one. It turns into a small community. Uh, I don't know how many people end up camping at the Buffalo Chip bar or campgrounds, but it's a lot. It's a little bit like many Woodstocks. And they bring in, you know, Kid Rock comes in, and ZZ Top comes in, and this band comes in, and that band, or ZZ Top did come in. So it's these bars that we're referring to are actually mini state fairs all around Sturgis. And people camp there and party there, and there's live events. And it's pretty pretty nuts, really, especially in the evening. It gets a little crazy. It used to get crazier than it does now, but it was pretty cool. And, you know, Sturgis has this... In this image or perception that people think is just wow, nuts, and there are places where it is. If you seek out that kind of adventure, you're going to find it, lots of it. But you have to seek it out. Generally speaking, surges is almost a family event, not quite. Um, but I thought, wow, why? Because I knew where some of these pockets of more interesting activity took place right over the years. You just figure that stuff out and get to know people. So I thought, wow, what a, let's give the audience, let's give people who are interested in what really goes on behind the scenes at Sturgis. Let's give them a look that they're not going to get it on discovery channel or whatever other television channel is going to cover Sturgis. Cause a lot of, you know, a lot of TV networks have covered Sturgis, but not, the way I was going to cover it. So the, it was a great idea and we executed it. It did okay. But man, you really learn quickly that in that kind of an environment, and I should have known better. We didn't have the crew. We didn't have the staff for it. That, that particular, because we were trapped, you know, and it was live, right? So we're doing live feeds from 20 miles away over here. And then we're going to cut to this happening over there. And oh, all the while we're up on stage at the full throttle saloon where there's a live performance, you know, going on. Uh, with a band called Jackal. Uh, So it was a very complex shoot because it was live and I learned a lot, but no, WWE was not going to be a part of it.
0: Was it a profitable endeavor
1: as best you recall? Yeah, it was profitable, but it wasn't nearly as profitable as it could have been. Had that first pay-per-view come off the way I wanted it to, I'd probably still be doing them. Wow. But it, it didn't come off the way I wanted it to. And it made me realize that unless I was going to invest a lot of money in a production team that I knew and had worked with, um, it just wasn't something I wanted to do again.
0: So the story with Eugene continues into SummerSlam where you give triple H a match with Eugene after evolution left Eugene bloodied up on raw and uh, triple H would attack Regal and do the same to him too. Um, Wade would have this to say a premature departure by Eric Bischoff caused a glitch in the Unforgiven pay-per-view main event match storyline on Sunday. When coach went to the ring to replace the fallen referee, many fans asked the logical question who gave him permission to be the referee in that match. When there were so many other actual referees who could have run out instead, it turns out Eric Bischoff was supposed to send coach to the ring. Bischoff though, was nowhere to be seen. He left the pay-per-view early because he was under the impression. He wasn't scripted on the show by the time WWE management figured out he wasn't around and called him on his cell phone. He was two hours out of Portland, headed to Seattle for Raw. WWE had to go through with sending coach to the ring without being the storyline, making any sense, Bischoff had a meeting with Vince McMahon the next day where the miscommunication was worked out. There was tremendous heat on Bischoff on Sunday, but by Monday, It seemed he had explained what happened to Vince McMahon's satisfaction. It sounds as if the writers and agents failed to tell Bischoff he had a role on the show. In any case, McMahon wasn't happy. He chose to leave so early anyway. What do you remember about this? This feels like an honest mistake. It also feels like something that well could have really upset Mr. McMahon.
1: Yeah. It's most of what Wade reported there was accurate, but some of it wasn't. Um, Here's what happened. Um, get to the show in the afternoon. You get a rough draft. You get a rewrite. You get another rewrite. You get another rewrite. But usually, by the time the show starts, what you've got in hand is what you what you're going to go with, right? Yeah. Uh, occasionally, there's some changes, injuries, something happens. Right. You got to make a, a call on the fly. But I was not on the I was not on the the uh, the script to participate in a main event. I wasn't up on the board. Order of events where usually if there's anybody involved in a segment, it's up on that board so everybody knows it. If you're walking around backstage, you know what segments you're in, you know who you're working with. And throughout the evening, you can kind of keep track of, okay, I've got about 20 minutes before I'm ready to go. Um, It's a complete TV run sheet on a big whiteboard my name wasn't there either. So I'm not on the script. I'm not on the whiteboard. And yes, I've got about a two, three hour drive at the end of uh, the pay-per-view that I have to get done in order to get to where I'm shooting TV that night, which means I would have got to where I was going at, you know, one 32 o'clock in the morning. And I'm not on the show. I'm done. There's no reason for me to stick around. So I thought, and I got in my car and I left so I could get to my hotel room before midnight and try to get a decent night's sleep before a while the next day. I get to my room, take a shower, get in bed, and my phone rings. Uh, Eric. Hey, Vince. Silence. Where are you? I'm in my hotel room. Goddamn. You're supposed to be in the main event. Well, sorry, Vince. I didn't know that. It was a short conversation, and he didn't yell. He, in fact, he was so calm that he made me feel guilty. I felt like the biggest piece of shit on the planet. the The, the feeling that I got with Vince on the other end of the phone was his disappointment in me. Like when you disappoint your dad, you know, when you're young and all you want is your dad's approval, you work hard to get that. You want to be acknowledged. You want to pat on the back every once in a while. You want to know your dad's proud of you. Not that I looked at Vince like a father figure. Don't get me wrong. But still, it's Vince McMahon. And I let him down. He told me what happened on the phone. The fact that I wasn't there caused an issue. But the way he did it, I just, oh, I felt Horrible. And there was never another mention of it. There was no meeting the next day. There was one phone call that night that lasted a total of about three minutes, and it was never mentioned again. However, from that point forward until the very last day that I worked in WWE, and even now, believe it or not, when I show up to do a one-off appearance, if I'm on that show, in the first segment, even if my name is not on the show for the rest of the night or on the board in the back, I'm either in Gorilla or standing right outside of Gorilla until the final match is over, and then I go home. And for What did I say? I was there for another two years after that, 18 months, two years, whatever. Yeah. I was at ringside at the end of the night, whether I was scheduled for that match or not, not ringside. I'm sorry. I was in gorilla, just standing right in front of events. I'm just here. Somebody gets hurt. Something happens. I'm here. That was the last time I ever left early.
0: Well, we learned a lesson there and uh, maybe you're looking to learn some new stuff and maybe you're a fan of professional wrestling. Well, that's why you're listening to this podcast. Whether you're a fan of wrestling companies today, or you were glued to your TV on Monday nights and your favorite wrestlers are no longer active. We have the perfect free mobile game for you on both Androids, Google play and Apple's app store. It's called ultimate wrestling trivia. Feel the flood of memories come rushing back. As you test your knowledge of all things from the world of professional wrestling by playing ultimate wrestling trivia. You're not alone in this quest as they've enlisted the help of more than 30 Of their famous friends to ask some of the questions and cheer you on. They'll celebrate whenever you answer a question correctly or bust your chops. When you get one wrong, this game has multiple former world champions, five hall of famers like Kevin Nash, Eric Bischoff, Tony Atlas, big Papa pump, and Jerry, the King Lawler download easy for me to say download ultimate wrestling trivia today and see where you stack up against the competition on the leaderboard. Search ultimate wrestling trivia in the Apple app store or on Google play and go to ultimate wrestling, trivia.com. That's ultimate wrestling, trivia.com for more information. If you like trivia, you'll love ultimate wrestling trivia, the free mobile game with over 10,000 questions, more than 650 video questions and over 30 wrestlers and legends, including Eric Bischoff and road dog and Kevin Nash. Find out who knows more wrestling trivia between you and your friends when you all play and join the same faction to download, just search ultimate wrestling trivia in the Apple app store or Google play store, or go to ultimate for more information. So, uh, Vince makes you versus Eugene. The first taboo Tuesday pay-per-view on October 19th in Milwaukee taboo. Tuesday is one of those things where, uh, maybe it was ahead of its time. Fans would go on the website, wv.com and vote on who they wanted to see face each other or what the stipulations would be either way. The fans were in control and it was not a Monday pay-per-view, not a Sunday pay-per-view, not a Saturday pay-per-view, a, a Tuesday, a taboo Tuesday. And in this match with you and Eugene, there are three options. Number one, loser gets their head shaved. Number two, loser wears a dress for a month. Number three. Loser becomes the winner's servant. Now, of course we're told the votes were all legit and loser gets their head shaved, gets 59% of the vote. Did you have any input as to what the stakes were? I know you, you, you're an advocate of stakes, not the kind we use on our rec tech, but you know, <laughs> these, these matches matter. These stories matter. Did you have a say uh, as to what the three options were or no? I didn't get to vote. I was most excited about getting my head shaved.
1: Um, cause I think visually that's just a better payoff in the moment. Um, and that's what I was hoping for, but I was pretty sure that's what's going to happen too. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the votes are legit. I did the same thing in WCW years before. It's like before the internet really. Um, where the fans got to choose. There was a heel locker room and a baby face locker room and a fan on WCW Saturday night. That's how far back that goes. Probably 93, 90, Yeah. 93. I think I did this and I did the same thing. You stack the voting questions in a way that you know what the outcome is going to be. So when they, when it was, you know, getting my head shaved as one of the three options, I, I was confident that that's what's, that was what was going to happen. And I was excited. I couldn't wait. I'll never forget. I think that's the one, right? My hair was black when it got shaved, right back then. Yeah, pretty sure.
0: Yeah, and this is the this is the end of the hair dye. I mean, yeah,
1: that's why I was excited about. I couldn't wait to stop dyeing my hair. It was funny because, I, and I'm I assumed Vince knew that I dyed my hair. I mean, I didn't try to keep it a secret. It, I mean, honestly, you could look at my hair and go, <laughs> "That motherfucker's got fake hair," you know? Um, it didn't look natural, really. But um, I remember when Eugene was shaving my hair, shaving my head, and he put that first clip through it, and I had all this white silver hair underneath it. I remember Vince was standing about two feet to my right watching all this. He goes, God damn, you phony son of a bitch. (laughs) Like he didn't know I had dyed my hair. It would be like me being surprised that he stuffed his shoulder pads in his suit. You know, we all just assume it. You don't have to know for a fact; it's pretty obvious.
0: Here's the uh, here's the report in the Observer. Eugene pinned Eric Bischoff in two minutes and one second. In a hair match. The hair match got fifty nine percent. Servant got twenty percent. Wearing a dress for a month got twenty one percent. The match was terrible. Eugene channeled Hulk Hogan, cupping his ear to get a reaction, and thus got the biggest pop of the show so far. And then he used a leg drop for the pin. I can't imagine them doing this unless Vince has decided he's going to call Hogan for Mania. Well, 2.96 does that to you. That's the rating. Coachman claimed that the fans live had voted for the servant match, even though they hadn't, and Coachman said Bischoff would have to be Eugene's servant for five minutes. Out comes Vince McMahon to right the wrong and get more revenge on Bischoff for 1997, and Bischoff walks off, and McMahon says he'd fire him if he didn't get his head shaved. Eugene tries to use the electric razor. That's not working. He uses scissors and the razor for a while, making Bischoff look like a mess. McMahon seeing the gray roots made fun of Bischoff for dyeing his hair as if, as if Vince hasn't done that for 15 years. So that kind of made it funny and also ordered coach to take off his shirt and pants and put on a dress. Well, for all of you aspiring WWE announcers, don't forget you'll be being made a fool out of, and that's part of the job. Coachman had to wear the dress. The rest of the show long after the joke had played out dud. So kind of is what it is. Uh, survivor series. we got Randy Orton teaming up with, uh, or Randy Orton's team, rather defeating triple H's team to win control of raw for the next four weeks. And Orton's partners were Benoit Jericho and Maven. And I'm wondering, did you request some time off or is it just a storyline decision to have you not be the GM for four weeks here?
1: I didn't request time off. I would never do that unless it was a family emergency, but then it wouldn't have been a four
0: week family emergency. What year, what month was this? This is, uh, after survivor series. So November ended December. You come back uh, December 13th, right here in Huntsville, Alabama. And of course you only did that. So you could come talk to me about podcasts, uh, 13 right? years we, in advance mm-hmm. of us.
1: As we both are. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, you were a lot less heelish when you return and you, you kind of keep that going for the rest of the year. Did they feel like maybe the evil GM thing had ran its course? Uh, they still liked the idea of having an authority figure, but Hey, maybe we should give that a rest for a bit.
1: I don't know what their thinking was. We didn't really talk creatively. I mean, I honestly, I had no conversations with the exception. Maybe there might've been one or two exceptions throughout my tenure there as talent where I had a conversation about creative away from television. But I, man, I just, I got there Monday. They told me what I was going to do. Worked with Bruce Pritchard, who's normally my producer and I delivered it. And then I went home and I didn't think about it much. I don't remember. I don't think there was ever a conversation about, Hey, let's tone down the heelish thing. Uh, I think it was just a function of what was written for me. You know, if, if what's presented to you creatively isn't heelish in its nature, uh, or intended to be, you know, to create heat. If it's presented to you in kind of a neutral form, then it's going to come off that way. So perhaps they were thinking that, but it was never communicated to me.
0: We got a ton of questions about this topic. I don't think there's any way we'll get to them all. Let's bounce around a few. Uh, Michael Gavin wants to know, did triple H influence and politics hurt raw when you were the raw GM, or was it just the bad booking that made, 2004, not enjoyable for me.
1: Again, because I wasn't anywhere near creative meetings or discussions, and I was I was so cognizant of staying away from politics. If I even heard people in a bit, back in catering where I hung out, if I even heard talent discussing creative in a way that I thought was just a little inappropriate, I'd get up and move. I just want to be a part of it. I'd been through all that, man. I lived that drama. I had been a victim of it. I would participated in it. I'd seen the damage that it had done. So I just stayed away. I have no idea what Triple H's influence was or wasn't back then. I had no idea who was coming up with whatever creative ideas back then. I've discussed this before. That's yeah. one of the things I think at WWE, they've done really, really well is to keep the fingerprints off the story. Now you know, or at least you knew, um, until Vince retired recently, that if you saw it on paper and somebody handed it to you, you know Vince McMahon's fingerprints are all over that, right? As an approval, but you don't know the ideation. You don't know who who created the idea, whose idea, where did it originate from? I never knew, so I I don't know, man. I don't. I just think they were trying different things in two thousand four. There, there was some experimentation going on. Taboo Tuesday is a perfect example. Who does a pay-per-view on a Tuesday? Nobody has. Well, let's do it and see what happens. That's, I think that was more of the approach to creative than anybody's political influence.
0: Well said. Uh, here's another one. This one's from Francis. Uh, what did you enjoy most about doing the first Monday Night Raw from the UK? And do you have any good tidbits you could share about that UK tour? For me,
1: again, I had some time by myself. I didn't hang out with anybody in WWE. You know, I, after a show or something, Coachman and I would always, you know, have a couple beers together and we'd laugh. And there were, there were a couple other people that I hung out with, including Rick occasionally and things like that. But for the most part, when I was overseas, I loved to take the opportunity just to go away from, get away from everybody else, go by myself, and just kind of explore neighborhoods. Not the tourist attractions, the neighborhoods. I've always been that way. For some, I went to Europe. I was a senior in high school. I was a foreign exchange student actually. And I went to live with a family in Germany, in Bavaria, Black Forest. And they barely spoke English and I barely spoke German. And one of the things that I always loved was just wandering around this little town that it was an agricultural community just wandering out of this little town, going into a bar or a restaurant and just meeting someone and trying to communicate with them and getting to know them. And that's what I did when I went to the UK and what I enjoyed about it most. I know this is going don't, to, I don't care what it makes me sound like. Don't really give a fuck, but I love going into old pubs that had been around from the 1600s and the 1700s. Cause I've always been drawn to history and I've been fascinated by the evolution of cultures and societies. And I know it sounds kind of basic, but man, you learn a lot about a culture by just sitting down and talking to an average working person in that town. Just a guy that works in a factory or woman, a husband and wife, and just introducing yourself and just talking. And that's what I did when I went to the UK. I would look for those pubs that were just little neighborhood pubs that were a couple hundred years old. And I would just start chatting with people that I'd never met before and didn't even, they didn't know who I was or nor did they care. Or in most cases, I didn't tell them that was fun.
0: Dave McClay wants to know what was your relationship like with Goldberg during this time before and after he left WrestleMania 20?
1: I think Bill and I have always been for the most part. I mean, we did have, you know, a rough patch when he was renegotiating his last contract with me in WCW, But but after that, we went to Sturgis together. You know, while we were both in WWE, uh, Bill and I uh, jumped up. In fact, it was the night that uh, we were setting up the angle with me and uh, Shane McMahon. And I think it was the week after I'd broken into Vince McMahon's house and accosted his wife. Um, That following Monday, Vince, or excuse me, Shane, confronted me in the ring and at the end of the show, and there was a scene where he punched me in the face. He actually split my lip right down the middle and uh split lip and all. <laughs> Bill Goldberg and I went right from that uh TV show. It was a live show right from that to a private jet and flew to Sturgis and rode Harley's together and shared a house together with a bunch of other guys. So I got along fine with Bill. We've never been close, close, but, Professionally, pretty friendly, and had a couple of things in common, and enjoyed each other's company. But I wouldn't say we're close friends—friends, friends, but not close friends.
0: Great question here that we never really talk about: the real life aspect. Luke from Eastern Iowa wants to know what Mrs. B think about you having your head shaved. She dug it
1: um, because she knew I hated dyeing my hair. So, and she liked the silver hair gimmick. She didn't understand it. You know, why do they want you to dye your hair? Cause that's what I looked like back then. You know? I get, I understood why Stephanie wanted me to dye my hair, but I hated it. She, my wife knew I hated it and she knew I'd be happy that I could get my head shaved and not have to dye it anymore. So she therefore was happy.
0: Talk to me about, uh, your, your contractual status here. This is a great one from WrestleManiac. Hypothetically, if Vincent offered Eric a three-year extension to remain as the on-screen GM past Oh four. What well, Eric have said? Yes, or did he start to think the character had run its course?
1: It's such a hard question to answer, honestly, because it would have been, There was two functioning parts of my brain that were kind of opposed to each other. I knew that the character had pl- had played itself out, and you can feel it. You know, when when you've been involved in stories and angles. And you've been a character that resonated as my Hill character did in WCW. I think arguably there was a point in time when I had as much heat, if not more heat than most of the people in the business at that time, it was brief, but it, it was there. And I know what that feels like. That is a very distinct feeling. The, the energy that you can feel from the crowd is palpable You can almost taste it, and it's delicious, by the way, straight-up delicious. But you also are aware when you're coming out, and you don't have that vibe, and you get more of that Pavlov, okay, Bischoff's coming out. I'm supposed to boo him, boo. It's Bischoff. He's playing a heel character. My job is to boo. That's a different vibration. That's a different energy. It just feels different, and you know it. You can sense it. It's, it too is palpable. So by that time, by the end of 94, whenever it was, or 2004, I should say, by the end of 2004, uh, I could tell creative was going through the motions. The material I was getting was eh. And I could just feel it walking out to the ring. I was relieved when Stephanie called me and said that they weren't going to renew my contract. I really was because I didn't want to go out there. Keep in mind, Conrad, what I said early on, I said it in my book. One of the reasons I was so excited about going to WWE in the first place when I first talked to Vince McMahon is because I thought, man, the last thing I did in the wrestling business was try to purchase WCW. The rug got pulled out from underneath us. That was not the way I wanted to end my story in the wrestling business. Going to WWE was my opportunity because all I had to do was go and perform and I knew I was good at it. And I knew I was playing on the biggest stage. I would be working with people I've never worked with before. I knew that I could be in control of that to a certain extent and make it positive for me. Even if I was doing things that I didn't really like doing, I had the ability to do them in such a way that I'd be proud of them. So by the time my contracts ready to expire, I was starting to feel like, yeah, this is getting, this is getting flat. And this is not the way I want to go out. I'd rather go out on a high note and end it than hang on forever for the money and end up back in that same position where I'm ending my career on a negative note. So I was relieved when Stephanie called me. But to answer the question, truthfully, I probably would have done done it for the money. The money probably would have... The time I'm making 350 grand a year for working one day a week. Hard to beat. Come on now. Who who is really honest enough to say that they'd walk away from that? I, I wouldn't have. I would do it, yeah. So it would have been, but fortunately I didn't have that option, right? I I it was a hypothetical. The question was a hypothetical. That question never came to me. It was a very nice conversation with Stephanie. I understood where she was coming from. I thought, okay, this is my opportunity to end everything on a positive note, to go out of this business the way I wanted to go out with a great working relationship with the company that was that I was working with, some new friends, made a lot of money. Now that time has come and I'll go do other stuff because I was already doing other stuff. I wasn't worried about what I was going to do for a living. I was already producing television and doing all kinds of things outside of WWE, So it was an easy transition. It was a question that I didn't have to deal with.
0: It's a long answer to a simple question. Fuck. Well, that's what we love about you.
1: Uh, I don't know if you do. I don't know if the listeners do. I apologize. if, If I'm boring anybody out there to death, I apologize.
0: Josh wants to know who is the easiest talent to work with. That's really not even a fun question. Who is the hardest and most difficult talent to work with is his second question. And his third is maybe my favorite was the catering as good back then? Well, let's go with the last question first
1: because it's the most important. I agree. Um, and, and the least subjective. It, no, the catering wasn't nearly. Now I don't know what the catering is going to be like now that Vince McMahon's out of the picture because I know Vince McMahon liked to eat, and I will say that WWE catering surpasses any catering I've ever experienced in the wrestling industry, but. I've also been involved in other television productions, non-wrestling television productions that other people produce, not me. And catering isn't even close to WWE, not even close. It was closer to TNA catering, which is, ugh. but no WWE catering is absolutely by far, not even measurably close so far ahead.
0: Most difficult to work with. Mm. Mm. Give me some dirt. goddammit.
1: damn it. Well, see, the, here's why this is hard, because I liked pushback. Right. I liked confrontation because I don't, I don't want to push an idea that sucks and have people just do it because I said to. So Scott Hall and Kevin Nash were horrible, but I loved them being horrible because usually made the product better, not every time, but most of the time. Um, So yeah, they could be just make you want to beat your head on a freaking rock. And then I'd be grateful for it. So I don't know. It's a tough one to answer. You know, I think when I have, when I, if I pointed to someone said that was most difficult person, to work with it's usually because their resistance to things was more personal and selfish than it was a trying to do something better for the product And in that case honky talk man hands down nobody even come close um but i tended not to work too closely with people that had that kind of approach
0: last one then we'll wrap this one up uh and by the way we've got a special treat at the end of the show so stay tuned uh don't you dare turn it off uh This is a fun one back on the grid wants to know, Eric, what was worse? Having your head shaved or taking a Bronco buster from may young. Oh, the Bronco buster. Yeah. The Bronco
1: buster. You want to hear a little interest. Do we have time for a little story? Sure. Kind of a follow-up to the infamous Bronco buster story. Yeah. So that took place in Los Angeles, right? At the time I had a, uh, a really nice apartment right down on the beach in Santa Monica because my, my production company had uh, an office in Burbank, and I was there a lot, so I kept up, kept an apartment. This particular pay-per-view, Mrs. B comes in. My kids come in. They didn't go to the pay-per-view, but they were waiting for me back in Santa Monica So, because when the show was done, it was done on the West Coast. It was done early enough. We we're going to go out and get a bite to eat, hang out together, a little bit of family time. We always love family time, right? So go through this whole thing. I find out about the whole Bron- Bronco Buster thing that day, That evening, actually. And, of course, I didn't know, you know, the sardine thing and all that, which I mean, still to this day, I don't know if that's true or not. I couldn't detect it. But anyway, but I was, that's one that I went, you know, that might have got a little too far. And I guess because my kids were there, my wife was there, it kind of put me in a bad mood. When it was over, I usually didn't react that way to things. Once TV was done, I don't care what I did on TV. There's a different person walking out of that arena than there was in that ring. This one stuck with me a little bit. And actually, the more I thought about it, the more angry I started to become. Now, I try to control it because I do have the potential when I get pissed off to escalate things to a point where it's counterproductive. But I'm trying to manage that. So we go out to eat. We're at an Italian restaurant sitting on the corner right on Third Street Promenade. Don't remember the name of it. Doesn't matter. It's probably changed hands five times since then anyway. Anyway, we're sitting outside. It's a nice night. My wife and my kids. And there's this asshole that is just being belligerent. He's being belligerent to the waitress. He's being belligerent. He's loud. He's obnoxious. You could tell he had a couple too many cocktails. And he looked over our table and he said something. I don't even know what it was. It was probably innocuous enough, but it was at the exact wrong moment. And I stood up. I wanted to kick his ass because there was a fence like around the outside area because it was right on the promenade. I stood up. I said, Let's go, you big loud son of a bitch. I said, Worse shit than that. A lot worse. And my wife and my kids are going, What in the? Because they didn't notice it. No, they didn't realize it. They were not really paying attention to this guy. I was. I was zeroed in on what an asshole he was. And it just kept building and building and building. And finally, when he looked at my table and said something in our direction, I went, fuck you. And I was gonna kill him. We're in a fancy, like four-star Italian restaurant in Santa Monica. And finally, the waiter came over and a bartender came over. My wife's, you know, trying to calm me down. And I realized after I sat down, the idiot sat down, I realized, God, I'm, I'm letting this bother me way too much. So I think that is the answer. Yeah, the Bronco Buster sucked. And it was just, it didn't have a purpose. That's, I guess, what bothered me. There was no, no reason for it. Didn't get anything done. I guess it was a momentary pop. You know, Vince got a chuckle out of it. Vince got a
0: chuckle out of it. That was it. That's
1: that's really all it was. And I guess that's probably what angered me because I I realized that.
0: Well, what I've realized is we've gone the whole episode without talking about Bischoffbook.com. Eric's new book with Guy Evans is coming out. It's called Grateful. There's unbelievable opportunities here. There's some special bonus material, some QR codes, some special interviews, some bonus action, which we all love. And right now, if you go ahead and pre-order over at bischoffbook.com, you can get it as a paperback or as a hardcover, And you can get a monograph, not just by Eric, but by Guy Evans as well. That's for the U S only. Anyway, all the details are at bischoffbook.com. This is going to be a great book. It's going to pick up where the last book left off, catch you up on what's been going on in Eric's life and, uh, his newfound perspective on life. And, uh, I can't wait to get my hands on this advanced copy. I know it's coming out later this year. When should I expect my early copy, Eric? Uh,
1: 11, 11, 22. November 11th, it comes out. And everybody will be getting theirs. It'll become available on Amazon. And the pre-orders will be fulfilled on and after that date. But it's it's and you you know you're in the book, Conrad. You're in the book because you've been a big part. This this podcast has been a big part of what's happened to me over the last five or seven years that maybe changed the way I look at not only myself or my not so much changed the way I look at myself, but really has impacted the way I look at my career. And this this podcast was really not the catalyst, but an important. An important part of me going, fuck, what am I, I'm looking at things all wrong. And that, that change and the story about that and has really impacted my life to just more than just about anything other than my family. And you're in it brother. So yeah, you'll really, you'll, you'll get a kick out of it.
0: Can't wait. Check it out. Bischoffbook.com next week. Eric and I are going to be back here talking about Arn's spot, not my dog spot. Orange spot, Not Rick liver spot. spot, liver spots, none of that orange. You know, spot. I, I
1: want to, you know, the one thing I want to say about Ric Flair's liver spots, I didn't get to, I had so many good jokes at that roast that I didn't get to deliver because I'm about
0: halfway through it. I'm getting wrapped up. Well, let's do it again. We'll, we'll do it next week. We'll do it. In that,
1: yeah. Cause I want to talk about Ric Flair's liver spots. I may have gotten that one in. I can't remember. Maybe I got that one in. Well, maybe I said at the end, yes, I did. I remember it now. I said, okay, I got to wrap this up. Because we promised Ric Flair that we'd get his liver spots home before bedtime.
0: I like that. Yeah, I think I got that in. Well, boys and girls, we're going to choose something uh, we don't normally do now. Uh, it's a very special little cross promotion with a friend of ours. A lot of the funny stuff that you hear about and read about and enjoyed and watched and talked about and broke down and discussed. And all these great podcasts was written by a fellow named Brian Goertz. He has a brand new book that comes out as you're listening to this tomorrow, called "There's Only One Problem." Brian has almost been like wrestling's Bigfoot. He's, he he doesn't allow photographs of himself or video of himself. He's a super private person. Even when we had him on as a guest on some of the live something to wrestles, his only request to Bruce and I was, "Hey, if you're going to tape it and it has to be posted, please put a blue dot over my face like Christian. Don't let anyone see me." And I got him on camera wrestling's Bigfoot. We talked for over an hour about his WWE experience. And we're going to play that for you now. Uh, if you would have been over at adfreeshows.com last week, you would have gotten it early and ad free. And we're going to, uh, show a little love to Brian and support his new book that comes out tomorrow, but really it's just going to wet your whistle for what's coming in November Bischoff book.com. And, uh, it's going to be a book like no other book, this QR code and the bonus interviews and I've never even heard of that. So once again, Eric's innovating and, uh, we're all going to be the beneficiary. So for now let's, uh, throw it to, uh, myself and Brian and next week, man, we'll be back here talking orange spot right here on 83 weeks. Hey, hey! it's Conrad Thompson and I can't believe this is a thing, but we found someone we once thought was a mythical creature, never seen, never photographed. He is pro wrestling's Bigfoot, but maybe with a smaller foot. Ladies and gentlemen, the author of your new favorite wrestling book. I can't believe he's here. Brian Gordes. Brian,
2: how are you, man? Good. Oh my God. This is happening. Great to see you, Conrad. Um, This is, yeah, wrestling's Bigfoot. I like it. uh, Thank you for using my actual last name, too, not the Bruce Pritchard intentionally butchered Gerwitz uh, that he loves to purport so much.
0: I mean, I'll be honest. I had to really think about it because not only has Bruce said it incorrectly for so long, but Bruce doing an impression of Michael Hayes doing it incorrectly. I had to really think about it because we just say it wrong for, I don't know, six years now. But we're going to get this right. There's just one problem. The brand new book. It's available right now at your local bookstores. It's available at Amazon. I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy. It's already one of my favorite wrestling books ever. And it's really different from every other wrestling book. You've never seen wrestling or heard stories from this perspective. I don't think a book from one of the quote unquote head writers. That's never been a thing, right? Brian?
2: I mean, certainly not in in recent times. I mean, I think uh, I think Vince Russo had a couple of books um, that, you know, certainly predated me um, as far as, you know, his stories and experiences at WWE. Um, But certainly, yeah, I mean, like mostly, as you know, like writers at WWE are, are not encouraged to be not really encouraged to do anything other than their job, which is writing the show. So right. it's not really, you know, in your wheelhouse and in your interest to be putting yourself over, so to speak. Um, that's certainly why I didn't really, you know, put myself out there at all. Um, you know, there in 1999 to 2015. It's why you never, you know, reading about Ed Kosky, whose who's tenure there is, you know, ex- exceeded mine. He's been there for over 20 years. Um, Ryan Ward, Nick Manfredini, like a lot of people don't know these names, but they've been working at WWE for a decade and and are great writers and are, uh, you know, that's that's just what you're supposed to do. It's supposed to be put it all on the page. And then when you're done and you're out of the business, um, you know, then maybe if the uh, if the circumstances are right, you know, you could write a book and put it out everywhere, August 16th.
0: Well, this book, uh, there's just one problem. It's available at your local bookstores. Uh, Of course, everybody goes to Amazon these days, but if you have a local bookstore, by gosh, support small businesses, go pick it up in person. Uh, but what I enjoyed about this book, man, is you're one of us, you know, I consider myself like, you know, the, yes, I guess I technically host a bunch of podcasts, but I'm kind of like the first listener. I'm the super fan who's lucky enough to get to have these conversations And the book starts out detailing your own fandom of how you were in love with wrestling as a kid. And then similar story to mine, you sort of fall out of love with wrestling and, you know, grow up a little bit or whatever. And then all of a sudden you're back into it and you find yourself attending some WrestleManias and somehow fast forward, you're helping create some of those same WrestleMania moments. It's, it's really a a unique perspective for a book in my, in my opinion.
2: No, thank you. Yeah. I mean, look. I, I was I was in my parents' house. We were cleaning out uh, the basement. I found my old. Wow. Piper, the, the giant one, I of course, have the uh, classic LJN ones, but still, you know, in very good condition, beating, you know, everybody back then. And yeah, I mean, I remember being at summer camp, uh, sleepaway camp, and someone handing me a PWI, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, um, with the full color centerfold of Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and you know just being pretty intrigued like what's all the most hated opponent most you know greatest opponent um the rankings everything else and you know i hit my sweet spot you know i was like 11 years old when the war to settle the score on mtv was on i mean that's just really like the perfect age to really start to get into it and of course being a long island wise ass heel uh loving person you know, of course I gravitated to Roddy Piper and the bad guys and, and Randy Savage when he was intercontinental champion and Mr. Perfect and all those sort of things. And yeah, it it is kind of surreal. Like, you know, detail in the book, you know, we went on college road trips, you know, from Syracuse to Madison square garden for WrestleMania 10, sat in the upper deck, literally sat in the last row for WrestleMania 11 in Hartford, Uh, (laughs) lucky enough to get tickets. And then, yeah, and then Vader got my friend uh, John Beck, who was a PA on Boy Meets World right out of uh, college, tickets to, again, the like, upper, upper tier of WrestleMania 12 in Anaheim. Um, so we were up there. So WrestleMania 10, 11, and 12, three years in a row. And, yeah, never in a million years did I think, like, three years later or whatever it was, um, you know, I'd actually be, you know, within the company and actually writing for them.
0: The other thing I found interesting in your fandom, and I hope I'm not giving away too much of the book, is that you really gravitated to the secondary characters. I mean, even your favorite wrestler, it wasn't Randy Savage. It wasn't Hulk Hogan. It wasn't the ultimate warrior. It was Roddy Piper, but then you really gravitated to go to guys like Owen Hart. And of course, these days, everybody can appreciate the greatness of Owen Hart. But as a kid in the moment, he was like one of your guys. And I've always been fascinated by that. And I think maybe that's the reason you were able to be so successful in WWE in creating storylines, not just for the main event, but for the whole cast of characters, because we've heard again, the rumor and innuendo is that Vince really focused on the main event. And then everything else was sort of up to everyone else, but man, you, it it feels like that could have played a hand in that. Am I is that fair to say, is that far off base?
2: No, that's accurate. I mean, look, Vince did, you know, concentrate on the main event and, you know, as the, As our schedules, you know, as Vince, as the CEO and head of the company, you know, he always had more and more responsibilities, but all the responsibilities of being the head of a publicly traded company, as well as being in charge of creative, which had then doubled from just raw and raw and a taped raw, you know, two TVs every two weeks to raw and SmackDown every single week, doubling the amount of uh, content, you know, his time uh, with the writers got more limited. So you you know you, you got in there for you know, I'm sure as Bruce has pointed out many times you got in there for uh, a limited amount of time and you know during that time he wanted to hear about what was going to be the main event and what was going to be the quote unquote money making angles but I always liked yeah I loved Owen uh, growing up I thought he, you know it was that perfect combination of he was like truly hilarious and entertaining and such a great wrestler you know like every time it's one of those things where you know, it's scripted. And, you know, as this is, I'm talking about like my college years when I really got into Owen Hart and uh, Bob Backlund as a heel, which I also thought was just so entertaining and ridiculous and, and crazy. Uh, I was like using these vocabulary words, sometimes correctly, sometimes not. And you really didn't know if he was doing it intentional. Um, you know, and, and, and Owen, yeah, as I outlined in the book, like we, we'd go to the Syracuse uh, On Center, the War Memorial at the time, Uh, And be the wise ass college kids in the crowd cheering for Owen against Brett to the point where one of my friends like got into a fight with like a little kid who actually took a swing at him because we were cheering (laughs) for Owen so hard. Um, And then afterwards, we stalked in the parking lot, like waited, uh, you know. Oh, and then the biggest I mean, the biggest thrill, obviously, was when we're cheering for Owen and he does the thing that you're really, I guess, technically not supposed to do is as a heel turn around and be like, yeah, and acknowledge the wise ass heels who are cheering you. Uh, He did that. And we were just like, so blown away. We, we, we raced after him in the parking lot, just like complete lunatics. Um, And yeah, he shook our hands. He talked to us. It was so cool. We unfortunately completely ignored double J Jeff Jarrett (laughs) (laughs) and driving and kind of looking at his watch, like let's move this along here um but yeah that was really cool um you know we had our bob Backlund signs at uh the fan fest at wrestlemania 11 which he caught a glimpse of and stopped his in-ring interview and went over and was just like yeah like a it's like those moments are the ones that you like remember almost more than you know the main event of wrestlemania 6 you know uh hogan and warrior and that type of thing because it personally connects with you like you never forget that Um, and yeah, I definitely part of it out of necessity because I'm like making my way in and I don't want to like, you know, especially when I'm starting immediately, like, ah, I'm going to be taking over the main event angle. It's like, it took a little while to work my way up to that, but it was easy to, you know, sidebar with Edge and Christian or earlier Al Snow and Steve Blackman and say, Hey, what are you guys doing? Let's, uh, why don't we come up? You know, Edge and Christian, you guys, you know, not that the silent vampire thing isn't spectacular. uh, And now you've since graduated to just like, you know, having incredible ladder matches with the Hardys. But they're, you know, Adam and Jay, Edge and Christian are basically just like me. We're born, born the same year. We're WWE loving fans from the 80s and 90s. And they're basically wise asses. I would say Christian was the closest personification of what I was like in real life uh, on, on the, uh, screen when we were doing his, you know, the, the five seconds of, photog- uh, of flash photography and the five second poses and all that. I used to go down to the village cause I lived in Gramercy at the time, um, into St. Mark's place and buy the giant sunglasses that they would use. Um, you know, that was my fun little endeavor on the weekends is, is like going down there and, you know, buying, uh, the props for that week's show.
0: Before we talk about, you know, some of that great attitude era stuff that you helped create, how do you go about, you know, being on the outside of the tent to the inside of the tent? Can you give us the cliff notes version of, of how this dream is realized?
2: Yeah. I mean, the cliff notes version is it's a series of, you know, fortunate coincidences and, you know, things out of my control, things in my control. I mean, the, you know, the, the cliff note version is, is writing on sitcoms, um, at the time, WWE, not even in my radar, other than the monthly pay-per-views that we would watch at my friend's house. Um, MTV had a string of specials for SummerSlam 1999. They needed a writer. My sister happened to be interning at MTV at the time and recommended me. Um, I wrote up some samples, got hired based on that. Uh, during that, you know, I we did a whole day shooting with Triple H, McFoley, and The Rock, uh, the Rock particularly like liked the stuff I had written. He recommended me to WWE. Um, I interviewed with WWE. I interviewed with HR, uh, Russo and Ferrara, um, Shane McMahon, and then Vince McMahon. Wow. Tanked all of them. <laughs> In fashion. Like, I'm asking Russo and Ferrara about, like, have you considered, you know, taking characters and making sitcoms out of them? Like, they, first of all, I know they don't remember. I've DM'd with Ed. He, he doesn't remember this. Uh, I don't blame him. I mean, there are plenty of interviews I don't remember either because the pace is just so fast. Yeah. Um, but no, that didn't particularly, I don't, I definitely don't think I made a positive impression in that. Shane, as I'm talking to him about, you know, uh, where the, the problems with, catching mets games in satellite tv in los angeles because he's like why do you want to move to the east coast like any anyone with half a brain would be like oh well wwe is a passion of mine and i can't wait to bring my creative you know ideas forward and contribute to this great company like i'm talking about yeah like they don't know how to uh yankee doodles in santa monica is really slow when it comes to uh figuring out how to get mets games on satellite like just the worst possible answers like you couldn't yeah. Even script worse answers, uh, and then finally, for whatever reason, when I interviewed with Vince, um, I just changed tack, changed tracks, and just let my inner WWE fandom come out and, and talk to him about, you know, going to see Roddy at the Garden and Nassau Coliseum growing up. Talk to him about our Royal Rumble pools. I actually, it, again, it was supposed to be Vince and Linda. Linda had another meeting, so it was just me and Vince. I just turned twenty-six. Wow, I'm talking to him about. How in our Royal Rumble pools in college, you know, we would if we weren't savvy enough to put numbers in. We had names in, even though we later changed it to numbers because sometimes people, you know, are announced they're not in, what have you. The great Quang debacle of 1994 comes to mind where uh, there was someone who was supposed to show up. He didn't and was replaced by Quang. And we're like, yeah, you got Quang. Sorry. And, uh, you know, that caused a riff amongst our uh, immediate, you know, that's, you know, what the cool college kids are, are up to, you know, debating of course whether Quang should count in a Royal Rumble Pool. Um, and then, yeah, there was one There was one friend of mine who picked both Well and Done from the tag team Well Done uh, in the Royal you know, picking 30 names out of a hat. He picked two, and that's who he got. Um, and I'm telling Vince that story, and he's cackling, and he's loving it. Um, I don't think he was familiar with the concept of Royal Rumble Pools uh, back in 1999. I don't think it had occurred to him. So that really like hit it off and he ended the interview by saying, we'll offer you a job you can't refuse. No, we'll make you an offer. You can't refuse nothing foreboding about that. Right. Um, But I did, I actually did refuse it because ultimately it was a, it was a uh, job for uh, the website, wwe.com, wwf.com, but you know, wwe.com. And I really wasn't ready to pack up a sitcom career, you know, having written on three, two shows at that point um and pack it in so i went back to la i wrote on a third show the uh prestigious multiple season uh big wolf on campus which yes hold your applause that's a good idea <laughs> um, and then, you know that was when my roommate who's who's again a, a huge wwe fan and who kind of got me back into it in college um you know told me that that vince and ed uh you know had left wwe to go to WCW, right when as I was like on my way out of the shower driving to the Wolf Show, and before I left there was an answering you know a, a beep on my answering machine, and it was WWE HR because I had told him you know very sanctimoniously like please you read your little websites if there was something of that magnitude that had happened I'm sure I would be the first to know go whatever and then yeah sure enough the uh, answering machine was HR saying yeah can you call us immediately because we have a situation that, uh, we'd like to talk to you about. Um, and that situation was basically, you know, they were left with zero writers, um, and had four hours of TV to do. So, you know, they hired, um, I'm sure a name you've heard before, Tommy Blacha of, uh, late night with Conan O'Brien. So he had been there for maybe a week or two. And then I started November 1st, um, because you know what, I just felt at that point, you know, the, uh, the world, you know, Hollywood and all that. First of all, as you know, I'm from New York, I'm from Long Island. I I, I kind of was a little homesick anyway. Um, and suddenly, you know, there's just so many variables when you're writing out in L.A. You know, you could be on a show that lasts for, you know, half a dozen years. Uh, you could be on a show like I was in the Jenny McCarthy sitcom at NBC that gets canceled after a few months. And you really don't know. And it's not just for writers, it's for writers, actors backstage directors anyone um you know where your next job's going to come from so i like the idea of of going on a show really two shows that weren't going anywhere um and smackdown were firmly entrenched on the air um and i like the idea of you know hey you know what maybe this will be a little you know fun experience to then later you know write about or excuse the fire engines there's uh Always some sort of anytime I'm on a Zoom, there's always some big fire emergency going
0: on. It adds to it, you know. Yeah. It, we're getting the full New York experience.
2: Yeah, you're not you're not here Pritchard in his comfy Connecticut mansion. Here in these no. uh, New York City firefighters, there we go. And then, uh, yeah, so I decided to take a chance. What the hell? And uh, that's basically how I got in.
0: So let's back up a little bit. I do want to talk about TV because I don't think a lot of folks know this. I didn't know this when I when I read your book. You actually have family in the TV business, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I always wanted to get into sitcoms because my uncle, whose name is Howard Goertz, was a very successful sitcom writer. Uh, you know, he he wrote on, you know, like classic shows like Taxi. Um, he wrote uh, Larry Sanders, Everybody Hates Chris. He was the showrunner on Wings for many years. He wrote an episode of The Simpsons. Um you know and i'm sure bosom buddies with tom hanks i got a, he, he got me tom hanks's autograph when i was uh, at summer camp in 1984 before splash came out wow and so yeah it was always something very very you know i kind of had tunnel vision from third grade to, to do what he did I, I just wanted to uh do that and you know i, I achieved that when when you know he was the, he was one of the executive producers on jenny When my writing partner and I, now there's a traffic jam and uh, there's (laughs) people are getting out of their cars. I love it. I love it. Um, And so, yeah, that was that was always the goal. And that was, you know, a goal that I was able to achieve pretty early. And I I was a PA in in L.A. and everything for a year and a half, which really is a short amount of time. Um, And I consider myself very lucky, you know, to be able to then get hired on a couple of shows. Um, And that's, you know, and by the way, there's like there was a whole group of us from Syracuse who moved out to LA after graduation with that same exact goal in mind. And many of them not only, you know, did it, but are still doing it. And that was always what, you know, including my, my, the writing, my writing partner that I had at the time, has uh, written on many successful shows. That's always the, like, the tracker when I'm like, if I hadn't gone to WWE, what would have, you know, I just kind of look at his credits and go, oh, probably that. We're um, <laughs> close to it. But yeah, there was something alluring about you know writing on the show that i'd always been a big fan of that never really considered before that was in new york or at least in the tri-state area um and was just so unique and different than any other show you could possibly envision yourself ever writing on um it seemed like it seemed like a as vince would say um a calculated risk
0: yes well, it's interesting too, that, you know, you, you have this passion and this goal of, of producing television and sitcoms and whatnot, and being a writer in that regard, but then you wind up landing this job that was a childhood passion of yours. Whereas some of the sitcoms, yes, we may and love the process of being creative and, and all of that, but it's not like you grew up being a huge Jenny McCarthy fan, right? So it's a totally different thing. It's, it had to check a lot of boxes. I can watch those Mets games. I can pursue this childhood passion. And, uh, you know, I guess on some level, did you think, hey, I can always go back to TV?
2: Yeah, I mean, I used that. That might have been like a secret weapon of mine in some respects, because, you know, a lot of writers now, now that like writing in WWE has become kind of a thing, there are people who, you know, have been wanting to write for WWE all their lives, and it's a passion of theirs, and sometimes it works to their advantage, and sometimes You know, once you achieve the dream, it gets so pressure filled and gets in your head and everything uh, that it could work to your detriment. You know, for me, I always had this, you know, rather I don't know if it's arrogant or or just, you know, the reality of the situation. But I always said to myself, the worst that the worst thing that can happen is the best thing that can happen. Meaning like if I got fired for, you know, either getting into an argument with Vince or not being effective or whatever, for whatever reason. Um, that would force me then to pack up, leave the East coast and go back to LA and get back into sitcom writing and television writing, which, you know, in the back of my head was always like, that's probably what you should be doing anyway. So that gave me this kind of, you know, this, this buffer, I guess, in which like I could, you know, I I never really had a fear of being fired or anything like that, uh, especially early on because I just thought, great, you fire me, it's your loss. I'm going to head back to LA. You know, like that was kind of my kind of what I would tell myself at least. I don't know how big a loss it would have been, been for them. It probably would have been a loss just from the sheer number standpoint of two people writing for them. Uh, those first like, you know, three, four months that I was there before it expanded a little bit, but yeah, that kind of, it kind of helped me a little bit and not, and always wanting to write television, but always not wanting to necessarily write WWE television.
0: You know, we hear a lot about the business end of professional wrestling from guys like Eric Bischoff, and he will remind us that the ad rates for professional wrestling are much smaller than other genres of entertainment. I'm wondering from a, a writer standpoint, from a production standpoint, is it, is it considered like a black mark if you wrote for WWE? Like when you try to go get new jobs, obviously you've created a, a ton of content, a ton of shows, a ton of pay-per-view specials. But it's not given credit the same way you might if, if you worked on a bunch of different episodes of a sitcom or what have you. And I just wonder, is that considered something that was like, oh, well, this is real television, honey. Or, or, or what's the approach and how is that received outside of the tent, if that makes sense?
2: No, it does make sense. You know, it's it's one of those things where that that sheen of the worst thing that can happen is the best thing that can happen started to ebb the longer I was into WWE because it's one thing to go back to Hollywood if you've been out for a year or two, but now you're talking like five years, six years, seven years, and it's like, you know, they're looking at your your credit list, and it's like, what have you been doing? And I think it is, I, I would like to think it has changed, you know, especially with WWE now, you know, the ad rates are much different now than it was yes. back then, and the I think the You know, respect within the entertainment business is at a higher level, especially with the success of Rock and Cena and Batista, you know, and others breaking into television and film. Um, But certainly like back then, um, you know, like being a staff writer on Sabrina the Teenage Wolf, Wolf? I'd love to see that show. Um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch um, would carry a lot more weight in terms of getting your next job in Hollywood than being the head writer of Raw or Smackdown for many years. Unless you happen to, like, run into an executive um, or or a showrunner who's just a diehard WWE fan who, like, recognizes what those shows are. Um, Because normally, you know, any time I would go, you know, meet somebody, quote-unquote, not in the business, you know, I'd get the same good-natured joke, and I still get it, by the way, which is like, oh, you're the writer for WWE. You mean it's not real? You know, like, get that joke, you know, a million times. Um, And there's, like, a... You know, and there's a sub level to that, too, where it's like, well, what do you what do you write? Arg, I'm going to kill you. And I like, no, it's, it's actually a lot more nuanced. Or at least we try to make it a lot more nuanced. And, uh, you know, it's it's, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, potentially nine hours of TV a, any given week. If there's a pay-per-view, um, you know, and if there's not still five to six hours a week of stuff with with 50 characters and sold out arenas and we're at least trying to sell out the arenas um it has to be more than arg i'm gonna kill you you know it's not like uh you know it's like the wrestling movie in barton fink where he has to write and it's like the most you know intentionally most basic uh caveman level stuff the business has has evolved considerably since then so yeah that was frustrating because yeah in hollywood um, certainly during my years that I was there full time from 1999, to 2012, being a writer on Raw and SmackDown. And it's not affiliated with the WGA, um, which is also another big thing. You know, technically, I was, you know, senior vice president of um, creative writing or something like that, as, as opposed to, quote unquote, a writer. Um, you know, it's, it's just a different animal. And, and it's I think it's made a lot of progress in the years, you know, certainly in the last like five, six years. Uh, where maybe now it is considered a little bit of a, uh, you know, a boon and an advantage to have on your IMDb page or what have you. But certainly back then it was just a weird curiosity. It wasn't like anything that could springboard you into another show. It's like, oh, he wrote, you know, he wrote uh, Perry Saturn talking to a mop. Get him a development deal. You know, that didn't happen.
0: Uh, Let's talk about you know, writers coming into the wrestling business, because we've heard that this was really a WWE thing that WWE wanted to bring in writers. But Eric Bischoff would say, no, I actually, you know, was, was playing up the Hollywood idea in the mid nineties because I thought, Hey, these guys understand how to tell stories and et cetera, et cetera. But you probably got to see a lot of folks who came through and, and took a stab at this really unique opportunity. Who weren't lifelong fans. They didn't grow up chasing down Owen Hart in parking lots or memorializing Roddy Piper. How difficult was it for a quote unquote mainstream writer to come into this almost subculture? I mean, it is a a whole new world, and then acclimate, and then along the way learn that oh, there's a crazy guy at the helm who has lots of quirks. It had to be tough, right?
2: No, it is it is incredibly difficult if you're you could be my opinion has always been, you can be an incredibly almost prolific writer in television. Um, and if you're coming into WWE with like literally no knowledge of the characters, the business, the history or anything like that, it's going to be uh, an extraordinary uphill battle. It just is. You, Cause you get, you get so, you know, you're, you're thrust into it immediately because there's a show coming out this week. There are no repeats. Um, you're at the behest of of Vince or right now, you know, Paul or whoever's in charge. And it's not like, you know, it's not like the Hollywood, like we're writing Young Rock right now, season three. Um, And, you know, you come into work and you, you know, some people work on the script and the script, you know, has an outline phase. And then you have meetings about the outline. Then it goes to script and you write the script and there are many drafts. And then ultimately, you know, as a single camera show, you shoot it. You know, a month later or whatever it is, while meanwhile there's a staff working on, you know, future episodes and all that. Here it's like we got a show in literally days. Um, and sometimes less than that. <laughs> you know, like when I started, we'd write SmackDown in, you know, Vince's hotel suite Tuesday morning day of the show. Um, so yeah, it, and and it's kind of like, you know, you're the writer in Hollywood is is like treated like, oh, the writers like pretty Pretty uh, you know special. I mean, I remember when Dwayne hosted SNL. Um, you know, I, I I got to go with him uh, and even contribute a little bit uh, a couple times, and and I've been to the SNL after party three times. And there's always like a special section where the writers sit, and I contrasted that with WWE where it's like you're finishing up RAW. Uh, at the end of the show, there would be some guy. Um, walk in, knock on the door and kind of just plop down a bag of box of crustables being like, all right, here are your crustables for your 180 mile trip to SmackDown on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, that's, and obviously too, if you're in WWE and have been there for year years, you go, Oh, cool. My crustables are here. How wonderful. Uh, but if you're like a Hollywood writer, who's used to like this certain way of doing things in a certain, um a certain you know, level of, yeah, comfort or what have you. The box of Crustables at 1130 at night as you drive on to, you know, Topeka or wherever, you know, places that you're not usually, I've never been to before, you know, in in pitch black darkness can be a little jarring from a lifestyle standpoint, not to mention just having no idea like, oh, a baby face would not do this or a heel would not do that. You know, there was, I remember um, there was a writer who was, who's still in the company and works in a much different capacity now um, in entertainment relations, who I'm friends with now, who would always like she, but she was not put in a position to succeed. And she was just like, like, you're the writer now. She had never written before. And I remember her always like, pitching handicap matches that used to be like the two on one match that used to be her favorite thing. And of course, Paul Heyman would always be like, okay, it's, it's the rock versus the APA. You know, what do you, what do you propose we do? And she'd be like, um, Rocco's over. So you're going to beat two of the biggest badasses with a single person. you destroy them? And she'd be like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, we'll have the APA go over. So you were going to take the biggest baby face in the company and have him just lose to, you know, and it's like, well, what can I do? I can't win here. Um, oh, great. Now my hard line. And that's
0: Paul Heyman calling right now.
2: <laughs> Paul. Um, so yeah it's just yeah please um excuse all these it's usually spam it's either spam or my mother it's one of the two things it's your mom
0: we should answer and we'll tape it and air it live here it will be fantastic it's
2: it's too much of a walk to go over and pick up the purchase (laughs) um but yeah the, the long story short of it is um you know contrary to sometimes what you hear they don't want fans they being wwe they want seasoned hollywood veterans um, you know, it, from my experience, that couldn't be further from the truth. Like if you had that's why I think I was I, I maintained a level of you know, success and tenure there, because when you have that mix of people who have some television writing experience, but also are are pretty hardcore fans, um, even if they're not like quoting, you know, newsletters from 1987 or whatever, but can at least tell you the main events of every WrestleMania in existence. Um, you know that I think is a sweet spot, and you know most of the successful writers, um, you know they started as writers' assistants um, and they worked their way up. And Ed Koski was a writer's assistant when he started. His first show was King of the Ring 2001 <laughs> with Kurt versus Shane in that infamous match. Um, and then, yeah, they, they and worked their way to the top. I, I could rattle off, you know, Krista Joseph. Uh, Ryan Ward, Ed Kosky, uh, so many of them just put in the work and put in the hours of being a writer's assistant, just learning, absorbing, not necessarily from me, uh, but to an extent, I guess, in terms of like to learn from the outsider, but from, you know, Michael Hayes and Bruce and Dusty Rhodes and Ted DiBiase and, you know, all the, uh, all the weapons in your arsenal, because they are weapons, uh, if, you, if you are smart about it and want to learn from them, uh, you know, and they use used to their advantage.
0: So let's talk about when you joined the company, it's November of 99. And I think a lot of us remember at the end of that month, somebody hit Steve Austin with a car. He's got to go away now. And, uh, he's going to have to have neck surgery. And I'm curious what you remember of the circus that you're joining. And now all of a sudden, very quickly, you've got two things happen. Vince Russo leaves right before you're there. Okay. Here you are but now do it without our top star and let's find a way to come up with a storyline to get him off TV. The timing of that had to be very challenging.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was the thing it was after my first successful TVs. Um, My first TV is November 1st and 2nd, you know, first, first day on the job, you know, that's a story in the book in and of itself. Second day on the job is when I contributed something of substance for the first time with Vince looking for a line that he could say, because the whole storyline was, did Vince hit his son Shane with a title belt on purpose or by accident? And DX of course is, you know, cause he was fighting Triple H. That was by the way, the, my, my first show, the main event of my first show was Shane versus triple H, wow. um, which with rock in one corner and DX in another corner is just like, and Austin down there too
0: just Jeff commentator i think
2: yeah it, it was the most you know attitude era awesome you know type just a raw main event in november um and yeah then then the second day they were teasing that vince was going to join dx and vince was like what is something i could join what's something i'd sooner join the cub scouts or no I'd, I'd sooner join the circus and then you know i was just like what if you said i'd sooner join wcw it's like that's it <laughs> and he marched to the ring And then of course in his grandiose way He's like I'd sooner join Divya CW And the crowd It was in Philly you know crowd was loud And they popped and that was like my first Like oh shit that didn't happen on the werewolf show <laughs> Like I can't uh, I can't like write something that um, You know Gets a instant reaction like that uh, So I'm feeling really good And then when I get home I was in, li- still living in LA at the time That's when Tommy Blacha called me And it was like Yeah. Great. First days. uh, this is going to be cool. By the way, Steve's got to get surgery. We're taking him out at survivor series. We don't know if he's ever going to wrestle again. Um, see you next Monday. So yeah, that was, um, that was like a major, holy shit moment. I think undertaker was out too during that time. Um, and yeah, we're doing, I think I started SmackDown episode six, you know, they've eclipsed a thousand episodes, I think. Um, But yeah, that was like a, what are we going to do? And that led to the infamous Stone Cold gets run over angle at Survivor Series. And it also led to an interesting thing that would, you know, rear its ugly head in the uh, annals of WWE history. History would repeat itself, which was, you know, you ask, well, okay, cool. We're going to run over Stone Cold. Uh, Who's running them over? And, uh, you know, the answer being, well, I don't know. We'll figure that part out later. Let's just get it done. So... (laughs) Uh, that approach has been, you know, met with mixed success. I'll, uh, I'll put it lightly, um, over the years.
0: Well, the other interesting thing about joining this circus, if you will, is not just the element of live TV that you've got to do so often and the amount of TV that you've got to do and the short runway to prepare it, but probably the most grueling part from someone who is accustomed to maybe that Hollywood lifestyle, the travel, right? Like that's not just the talent in the ring, it's the whole crew, it's the riggers, it's the writers, right? Everybody's on this crazy train
2: together. Yeah, yeah. That that is a you know, I know sometimes the only television show that has like as many parallels to WWE is uh SNL. Yeah. Because of the whole, you know, you know, um basically top guy in Lauren and Vince. Um, you know, overseeing it. And it's kind of a television institution. And, you know, you have like different levels of tiers of stars. And when they bring in a ringer in SNL to like portray, uh, you know, either a famous political person like Alec Baldwin did with Trump, there's always this contingency of like, they should give it to one of the cast members who's working their ass off and there every week. And it's similar to like, you know, you bring in sometimes whoever uh today, it's like Logan Paul or bad yeah. Bunny And, Uh, you know previously even like even rock when he came back and there's like they, they should be giving those spots to the people who are there every week um so there are similarities but the biggest you know difference is you're at 30 rock you know every single week for snl whatever it is 22 24 weeks a year versus on the road um you know 52 weeks a year and you know and obviously now smackdown is live so other than Pay-per-views and RAWs—you really don't have that back-to-back day phenomenon. And even now, I guess pay-per-views are like on Saturdays, so you still don't even get that. Work on a show all day, finish it, and then drive. If it's under two hundred miles, I remember it would be considered. Oh, thank goodness, it's a light one. I'll get in at two thirty in the morning, before three. That's like I'm. I don't even know what to do with myself, Um, and then you know travel, uh, you know back home. And this was also before the corporate jet. Um, So there wasn't like, you know, ultimately I was fortunate enough to be able to travel on, on the WWE jet, which, you know, certainly helped as far as travel is concerned, obviously a great deal. Um, But in some respects I liked driving between towns more because first of all, you're not on call and you're not able to like discuss the show, you know, with Vince and and everybody Um, you could relax you can't sleep. That's what I, I did notice that because that's a that's a road no no. You can't sleep while someone else is driving because it's disrespectful to the other driver, which makes sense. I mean, again, I I found myself. I, I used to be able to sleep on planes and trains and cars, and and I still do in terms of trains and cars. Uh, planes I can no longer sleep on because I made the mistake of falling on asleep on the corporate jet early, and Vince got up from his seat, got within a half. Inch from my face and just screamed my name As loud as he could Scaring the living shit out of me And everyone on the plane having a good laugh And then you know me just Like bug eyed and, and, and uh, Always constantly awake On even cross country uh, Flights both commercial and private uh, Ever since um, But yeah there, there was that, that is a major adjustment and I don't know if it occurs Now because now you have people going To Monday show they go home People go on a Friday show go home maybe there's like a one day maybe a Friday to Saturday thing with Smackdown in the uh, pay-per-view I don't think it's I don't know I don't know if uh, they're in a relatively same town or or what have you but it's nothing like it used to be where you would do let's say Sunday a pay-per-view and then drive that night to Raw um, and then drive after Raw at like you know the show would end at 1110 there was a good chunk a good portion of uh, time where there would be post-production meetings where we would then like go over the show with a fine tooth comb and you know, what segment worked, what segment didn't, which again, in theory, like, yeah, that, that that's helpful. That's good. Um, when it's like 1130 and you've got to drive and all the agents who were there, you know, your, your, your Arn Anderson's and Dean Malenko's and everybody, you know, they had to get in a car and, you know, if they were, you know, if you weren't on the corporate jet, you had to get in a car and then do the drive. Um, and, you know, at a certain point it's been like, Look, I love Nunzio as much as the next guy. Do we really have to spend 15 minutes talking about his promo segment uh, when I got a drive to the next town, which is 300 miles away? Um, but, you know, by the way, in those drives, I probably got at least five seasons worth of something to wrestle with before that ever became a thing. You know, just driving I'm with Bruce. Bruce. Yeah. Oh. And listening to his stories. That was the funniest thing when. When when his when, you know, your guy's show started and it blew up and it's like, oh, my God, look at these inside stories is mind blowing I'm like, this is this is like, you know, Tallahassee to to Miami Drive or whatever it is. Right. This is Bruce being Bruce. I've heard these stories like a, a zillion times. And then, of course, all the things which is, you know, probably we'll save it for another show. That he has stolen from me and used on your show, <laughs> which is too numerous to count. Everything, every Michael Hayes imitation he's ever had, um, I probably did first. Well,
0: but we got to talk about that. It's become three. a big part of the show. And now the whole internet does it and knows about Doot, Doot, Doot. Yeah.
2: Like, where's my cut of the Doot, Doot, Doot fanny packs, Bruce? Tell
0: everybody the Doot, Doot, Doot story because you are the originator of Doot, Doot, Doot.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you know Michael, his biggest complaint is always like the catchphrases that we've assessed to him is something that he technically has never said. Right. So doot doot do is more of just an attitude and a state of mind really than an actual, you know, thing that he said. Because like, you know, he would always, you know, I love Michael, but he'd always be like, you know, one day be like you know damn it we got to protect these kids they're doing ladder matches they're doing spots we got to be smarter than that okay absolutely you know 100 percent. and then like literally like later that meeting same meeting vince what if them Hardy boys jumped off a ladder onto another ladder onto the steel grate and we just be like looking at them like what the hell, Michael? Well, you want to make money or not? Dude, 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 I'm booked a main event, you know, like that kind of thing. And like, that was just his, that was just like, the, everyone got that. When you, when you saw Michael, you know, he'd be like, dude, 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 I'm going to cause trouble today. You know, that's just, that's just who he is. And we're all better for it.
0: One of my favorite stories, uh, about Michael Hayes that you told at one of our live shows with Bruce once upon a time is where he was trying to learn about Jewish holidays <laughs> Uh, him growing up in the South, uh, probably just grew up with a lot of Baptists and whatnot, like myself. And, uh, you don't, you don't wind up making a lot of Jewish friends and you became one of his first Jewish friends. And he had some questions about what holidays and what's different and all that. Can I tag you in here?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, it was Thanksgiving break. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, everyone's getting excited to, you know, not really break, but Thanksgiving to go home and spend, and he's like, y'all celebrate Thanksgiving. Like again, not in a malicious way, but in a genuinely curious. And it's like, yeah, like we celebrate Thanksgiving. In fact, you know, the more research I did, it's like, uh, Thanksgiving is actually very big deal in the Jewish culture because it's like, you know, meaning escaping oppression and coming together as one and that type of thing. Um, and, yeah, I had to, like, sit down, Michael, and be like, you know, we celebrate Thanksgiving, Halloween, <laughs> New Year's, Father's Day, like, all your greatest hits. We're there celebrating, like, no matter the business. So, you know, the ones that you would probably think, like, we don't celebrate, like, you know, Easter, Christmas, that type of thing. Like, yeah, that, th- those are the ones you could check off saying, like, you know, I could, I could write the script that day. But, yeah, all the other ones, yeah, we're right there. Right there on the one yard line, ready to you know go into the end zone. That makes no sense, but
0: you know what I mean. Y'all celebrate Thanksgiving. It's one of my favorite lines ever from one of our live shows. It just (laughs) tickles. But Uh,
2: but again, it's like it's the quote, but also the fact that he genuinely didn't know, right? Like a like you know some sort of like knock or crack. It's like you know like a it's like a baby deer. It's like Bambi on the ice sheet of ice. You know like spreading his legs and exploring the planet for the first time. It's, it's quite adorable.
0: I'm going to put you on the spot here, but there was another story that you dripped on us once at a, a live show about Michael. And it was around the time that Stephanie and Hunter were going to have their first baby, their first child. And this is maybe one of my favorite Brian stories ever. And we didn't talk about whether or not we could share it. And maybe we'll edit this out, but <laughs> you probably know which one I'm talking about.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so I'm trying to recall exactly um
0: There was so be not- a Beyonce song, I think, that was popular. Yeah, yeah,
2: no. Well, it was one of those things where um, you know, I was joking around with Vince on the plane and I I don't know, Michael had just done something. You know, his exploits are well known. I don't think I'm speaking out of school if I oh. if I mention any of them. And I'm just saying I said something to the effect of like like Vince, you know, this is the man that Has again. I wasn't on these flights, so allegedly um, attempted to urinate on a sleeping Linda, and you know stuff like you know stuff like that. Like what? Like he's the most one of the the most, if not the most valuable people you have in the company. His creative mind is beyond compare. You know he's the best uh, agent you have in terms of agent slash producer. He is a um, you know a, a just a indispensable member of the team that being said what would it take for this man to actually get in trouble with you i mean does he have to be and this is when you know shane and marissa were about to um give give birth this is yeah this was i think not even stephanie and hunter i think this was shane and marissa okay does he have to be does he have to be like literally be like in the delivery room with a megaphone going, hey, stupid baby, you don't know nothing. I know more than you. You're just a stupid baby. I'm smarter than you. <laughs> dude, 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 I know more than that baby. And then, like, of course, we get that. That goes back to him, mainly because we said it back to him. Um, and it just takes a life on its own, including, uh, you know, I think I collaborated with Bruce on the, uh, you know, the Beyonce-inspired hit, All the Stupid Babies. Which is basically Michael in a unitard dancing like Beyonce, going all the stupid babies, all the stupid babies, do 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 do. And you can envision it, you know, in your head. It's a it's a kind of a scary image, but um, you know, every time Michael would say something in a meeting, um, you know, that we would either disagree with or Vince would turn down. You know, Bruce and I would look at each other and go, "Stupid baby," and that's uh, yeah, that became our our Michael code.
0: And all these years later, dude, do, doot, dude, do, still rolling. Uh, did, did you ever go shopping with Mr. Hayes? Y'all ever go get custom suits together, Dumb and Dumber style?
2: No, I never, I never went shopping with uh, Michael Hayes. Um, I did go shopping. Well, I didn't necessarily go shopping. This was like WrestleMania 17, uh, and Paul Heyman was doing commentary in Houston for WrestleMania, and he wanted to get his tuxedo and uh, some Chick-fil-A. So he kind of said, you know, you're coming with me. We went to the suit store and Paul was uh, trying on his tuxedo or whatever. And the salesperson said, um, your dad's going to really like this tuxedo. <laughs> and I'm like, Paul is eight years older than me. I don't think um, he's going to necessarily like the dad reference. Um, but, you know, Paul looked older than he was and I looked younger than I was. So I guess it was a, uh, you know, it was bound to happen.
0: Paul Heyman, man, has enjoyed uh, an on-camera resurgence in recent years like nobody's business. You got to see him operate at a really high level behind the scenes as well. If you had to pick, what do you think his strong suit is? Obviously, he can do it all, but do you think his contributions are more valuable behind the camera or in front of the camera?
2: You know, I think I think both. I mean, I, I obviously, it's not like he's bad at one thing and good at the other. Like you said, I think he's really good at both. I think, I think I would say on camera, just because he, that's where he's been given the most opportunity to really flourish, you know, behind the scenes, he's subject to the same whims, you know, in during our period of Vince and the thumbs up and thumbs down uh, that all of us were. So it's not as if we were ever just like given the uh, you know, the show and being like, all right, I'm going to, head over to Maui for a month. uh, Let me know how it turns out. You know, you're still pitching and trying to get things approved. Um, Whereas I think now as a performer, uh, he's gained a certain level of trust and he's always been able to cut a good promo, a great promo, obviously. Uh, But now I don't even think he necessarily, I could be wrong, but I don't think he, you know, necessarily has to have go through the process of writing something and getting it approved and the whole word for word thing. He could just go out there and do it um, and have it be, really compelling no matter what. So, um, you know, and the fact too that he is in and has always found himself in these main event storylines, you know, he's obviously, you know, they they tried over the years to, to, um, you know, affix him with certain talent to, to have them like rise up, you know, the, the, the rankings or what have you. And that's been, you know, the met with mixed success, but for the most part, whether it was with Brock, whether it's with Roman, whether it's with Punk, um, you know, he's been there in these key angles, historic angles, and, you know, contributing a hell of a lot to them. So yeah, I would say, you know, if I had to choose one, I, I guess I, it would be as a performer. But obviously, you know, he brings a certain, you know, level of, of savvy and skill to either one of those things.
0: Talk to me a little bit about ECW you know you're a guy who who grew up as a hardcore wrestling fan was ECW even on your radar or are you more of a WWF guy did you watch WCW what can you tell us about those two
2: um ECW I never really got into um I would I'd occasionally catch it on the Madison Square Garden Network um but I wasn't watching the shows I mean I think like uh I think Ed Kosky for instance I think he, he grew up in Philly in, in the area he'd go to those shows I never did um You know, my biggest ECW influence really was was the drive from Syracuse to uh, Hartford for WrestleMania 11. And the friend who had got us tickets (laughs) was playing tapes uh, in the car ride of Cactus Jack and Terry Funk and those angles from ECW. And those are really like my first exposure to that. And and I found them to be pretty fascinating. Um, You know, so it was limited. I, I, you know, I, I thought it was cool what I saw but I never really got into it. And WCW was something like I always, you know, took myself to be a pretty strong WWE loyalist. Um, But during the Monday night wars, I was like everybody else switching over going back and forth, especially when, you know, the, your WWE favorites were dominating the scene. So obviously when Hogan turned and went NWO and, and when Hall and Nash showed up, period, um, you know, that was a big factor. I had to watch it. Obviously, Roddy showing up um, was was huge. It was surreal to watch him in a different company, um, you know, post WWE career. Um, Savage, Mr. Perfect, everybody else. So, yeah, um, like we would we we'd occasionally watch WCW pay-per-views. Um, certainly Hogan versus Piper I had to watch that again in 96 or whenever it was. Um, I mean, we were mainly WWE sticking by it you know even during the lean times in the mid 80s and mid 90s i should say but um yeah during those monday night wars like we were uh you know trying to take it all in um as much as possible but yeah ecw kind of you know on the periphery of my fandom
0: so as a long-time wwf fan and now you find yourself on the inside all of a sudden Vince acquires WCW and before you know it there's discussion of an invasion angle. I think now with the benefit of hindsight we could all agree that boy we wish that would have gone better. Ever-
2: what? Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you uh you were there trying to make chicken salad as we like to say. How difficult yeah. was that in in hindsight?
2: Um, well it was difficult in hindsight and it was difficult in the moment, <laughs> you know. Um because, yeah, you just and I'm sure you and Bruce and, and Eric and 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 Jr. and everyone, you know, I'm, it's been talked about a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, the biggest and, and it's true, kind of like the biggest um, the biggest obstacle was looking at the talent roster and making it credible. And you just can't create, you know, these matchups that people wanted to see. You didn't have the ingredients to do them. So there's no Goldberg, there's no Hogan, Hall, Nash, uh, there's no Sting, there's no Flair, there's no Bischoff. At least you know during this Invasion time, yeah. Um, and it looks like, well, the name brand value, the name value of WCW versus WWE, and then ultimately ECW plus WCW versus WWE, that will buy you a pay per view for sure. And it did. I mean, the first Invasion pay per view um, did pretty massive buy rate. Um, but at the same time it was like, I forget what the main event was, but I think it was like Booker and DDP and the Dudleys, um, you know, against like all these WWE stalwarts. So, um, that was, yeah, that was definitely the biggest obstacle was the players and making the chicken salad. And of course, you know, also in hindsight, there's so many things that could have been done different. Um, you know, I, there was definitely a contingency of, well, yeah, you can gain credibility with WCW by having them beat the WWE guys. Uh, there's also a mindset of, well, then if you do that, if all of a sudden like, you know, Lance Storm's beating the rock one, two, three in the middle of the ring. And that's not a, obviously knocking Lance storm because he's awesome and he's a, he's a great wrestler and he's, and he promotes the book too. And I thank you Lance for that. Um, but, you know, there, there'll be a contingency of fans going like, oh, this I'm not buying this. You know, that at least was the talk then. Um, and I remember we had meetings, not only writers meetings, but we had meetings with the production team. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, longtime behind the scenes WWE people who weren't on the writing team, you know, trying to hash this out and make it work. And I guess in some respects you could say, God, all that brain power And that's what you guys came up with. Um but there was a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of cool moments, individual moments within the invasion. Um, you know, I think as a whole, it's taken as a, wow, what of the biggest wasted opportunities in, in the history of wrestling. Uh, and you can't really argue with that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's also a huge, huge what if. It's like, what if we, you know, those contracts weren't guaranteed to all those WCW performers and we could have had them on piece of paper and done, you know, your Goldbergs versus Austin's and, you know, Sting versus The Rock and you know, all the things that, you know, in some respects, those matches would eventually happen. But they'd happen like two, three years later when the when the um shimmer of WCW versus WWE had waned and you know fizzled out um m- much of that by our own doing. So, yeah, it's one of those, you know, Bischoff would eventually join, Flair would eventually join, Goldberg, NWO. You know, he was staying obviously much, much, many, many years later. Um, but to have them all there in, you know, whatever it was after that show in March of 2001 uh, and then to be able to really do a true invasion. Yeah, that's one of the greatest, like, oh, my God, what if we were able to do that? Um, would have Would have changed the course of history.
0: You know, when you take a look at the result of the invasion i think the guy who benefited most who came over from wcw is probably booker t i mean booker t became probably the big standout star but i think when it first happened i would have assumed it might have been diamond dallas page why don't you think ddp had more success in wwe
2: oh because they gave him bruce's stalker angle i mean i think it's obvious that bruce single-handedly destroyed yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was hoping you'd laugh at that
0: and you're like yeah no that's true i'm, I'm going with it like i <laughs> from now on i want the narrative online to be that bruce pritchard personally single-handedly
2: torpedoed
0: ddp's career and, and did it, a
2: uh, smile he loved every second of it yes he didn't get enough of it because he's like i ain't doing yoga what do i care fuck him <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a spot on bruce pritchard right there too
2: <laughs> but no i think you know obviously and i don't I guess that was Bruce's idea, that angle. He's cop to it. Um, I was never really a big fan of it. But yeah, that kind of... Like, DDP is kind of like this lunch pail, blue-collar, like, babyface guy. That's another thing that kind of, like, hamstrung WCW a little bit, that that there were, like, all of them, babyfaces or heels, NECW, like, put under the heel banner because they were going up against WWE. Right. Uh, And you had guys like RVD who managed to succeed anyway who still straddled the fence of being like super popular and cool, even though he was quote unquote on the heel side, Yeah, um, you know, in Booker or two to an extent, but, but, but DDP, he, you know, he started seeing success in WWE and it was incremental. Um, and I don't think it ever reached the same heights as it did in WCW, obviously, but like once we're like, okay, the stalker thing, that didn't work. Um, and let's like kind of tap into the real DDP. And he became like the self-help guru He had his uh, WrestleMania 18 program with Christian uh, and he had those cheesy vignettes where he was like smiling in the camera and it was a lot looser. I mean, you couldn't get more night and day than I'm stalking the Undertaker's wife to trying to help Christian find his smile. Um, But sometimes like radical departures like that um, is is exactly what the doctor ordered. And I think it definitely helped DDP at least, you know, um, have that character save face and have the human being. Uh, also in a lot, lot more comfortable position and and having fun again.
0: We know that uh, the stalker angle didn't work and maybe the invasion as a whole was less than. What were some ideas that you fought for that didn't happen?
2: It's a great question. I've been asked it. I've been thinking about it because on the spot, I haven't been able to uh, think of anything. But I would say, uh, and I'm certainly not the only one who is advocating for this, Um, But I was a big proponent. I really wanted to see uh, Booker beat Triple H at uh, WrestleMania 19. Um, And, you know, I had worked with Booker, you know, I'd personally worked with Booker, Booker and Goldust in all the vignettes, uh, you know, when they were put together. Uh, And that was a, you know, a really fortunate, you know, that movie review thing with Booker and Goldust, uh, which was Vince's idea to do that specific vignette and put them together and he assigned me to work on it which which i did and, and you know seeing booker with the sword juxtaposed over scorpion king um is really really funny and you could tell right away you could tell when someone has instant chemistry uh like they did like great we're doing this again and being able to come up with all these things for them to do like i took a lot of i had a lot of fun and took a lot of pride you know in seeing those vignettes be successful and working with booker and dustin um and to then Booker then to break off into a singles um, with Triple H, you know, and, you know, that angle in and of itself, there's a lot of things to uh, dissect and, and talk about when it comes to that angle. But as far as the result is concerned, um, I was, yeah, I, I really wanted to see Booker win um, partially from working with him so closely. Secondly, because that seemed to be the right culmination of that angle. You're yeah. talking about, a you know, a baby face who is overcoming the odds and, 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 you know, fighting like the big bad of WWE at the time. Um, And I just remember, you know, there's a different mindset. When I saw SummerSlam this past year, so many huge things happened. Um, It made me think of the Booker versus um, Triple H match, because I remember at the time, you know, the feeling was backstage, the, you know, when we talk about it in the producers meeting, it wasn't like, no, Triple H is better than Booker. So Triple H needs to win. It was, in the totality of the show, we had two champions at the time, and Brock is going over Kurt. And then the other huge seismic thing is this um, Mr. McMahon versus um, Hulk Hogan oh, match bitch. with with Roddy doing a run-in and everything else. And if you also have, which which you know Booker and Triple H wasn't positioned as the last match of the show, quote-unquote, it's not the main event, even though they say there's several main events. Um, if you do it, then it will, quote-unquote, you know, be you know, forgotten about, or, you know, quote, unquote, be, get, get, get lost within um, everything else that's happening on the pay-per-view and it's not given its proper spotlight. Um, Okay, great. Can we do it next month? No. (laughs) So, you know, that was one of those things where when you see so many different, like huge moments happen on the pay-per-views, like, you know, in this era and today you go like, wow, I really, you know, I don't know if I, and I certainly didn't agree with it at the time, but I don't necessarily agree with that why not just have a show filled with memorable moments and filled with huge finishes that are great and everything, as opposed to, you know, nobody's going to quote unquote, you know, it won't get its proper due if it happens, if it's buried within the third match to the last and that type of thing. Um, Especially because Brock and, and Kurt is a SmackDown angle. Right. And, 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 you know, I know Mr. McMahon and and, and Hogan kind of goes over both shows, but Booker and, uh, and Triple H was the centerpiece of Raw. So as far as Raw is concerned, it's not really getting lost in the shuffle. It's it's the big, huge moment. Um, so, yeah, that was one of those things that uh, I always thought we should have done differently. As
0: somebody who had to write for it, what do you think of the brand split? It's been pretty uh, polarizing over the years. Some people are really for it. Other people think it's a terrible idea. You could probably see the pros and cons of each side. What what do you think of that brand split?
2: I mean, the brand split was... Yeah, there are pros and cons. It was exciting when it first happened because they split up the writers as well. And they named, you know, Paul Heyman and I lead writers of uh, Raw and SmackDown. Like as I wrote about in the book, I was convinced that I was going to be the lead writer of SmackDown because all my buddies, quote unquote, were on on that show. We did the draft first and then we were told about the writing staff split second. So this SmackDown show was staffed with people that I worked with and loved writing for in the rock and Jericho and Kurt and edge. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to remember all them, Uh, you know, whereas on raw, you had a lot of people that you would think that Paul would be more comfortable with, with Austin and undertaker and NWO. Uh, So when Vince announced that I would be on raw and Paul would be on SmackDown, it was, yeah, it was jarring. That's from a personal standpoint, from a band standpoint. Um, yeah. I mean, I get it. I definitely get it as far as like, it, like splitting, you know, when, when let me backtrack when SmackDown first came out, I was like a lot of people were going like, ah, this is the uh, turning point here. This is just too much to follow yeah. in uh, a single week. I don't have four hours and with a pay-per-view every four weeks, sometimes seven hours if you're a diehard Sunday night, heat, fan, eight hours of time to devote to this. Um, I'm going to, you know, and it wasn't like DVRs where, you know, like nobody knows how to set a VCR. Um, yeah. Like that was a very, very challenging thing to like set your VCR and then like, you know, sit down and find time to watch four hours plus of TV every single week. So I definitely got the, um, I got the, idea and the strengths behind splitting the brands um and from a creative standpoint too you're not burning out the matches you're not burning out the talent in fact if anything you're letting talent that wouldn't necessarily have time to shine on the co-branded shows now have the opportunity to step up to the plate Um, so all of that stuff made sense you know from a fan standpoint you know you're nodding you know when you hear these uh you know the rationalization and going like yeah, but when I watch Raw, I want to see The Rock on Raw. Or I want to see Chris Jericho or Kurt Angle on Raw. Uh, they're not on Raw. Raw is less than now. So I'm not as interested. Um, you know, and that's been a, it's been the perpetual challenge ever since 2002. Because, you know, there's always these brand splits. There's always these drafts. I remember like that, like <laughs> I would put on my old man hat and be like, my day, the draft used to mean something you're on that show you stayed on that show um but even that really wasn't the case because you'd have you know run-ins and then i forget what it was some sort of like i forgot what the buzzword was when you'd have all of a sudden oh, the special exemption what have you like the, the brand splits never truly the brand split anyway because the ratings start to go down there's panic there'd be like oh well the champions could be on both shows oh the The number one contenders could be on, you know, you know what? You don't even need a reason. They just show up. And then all of a sudden it's like a limited brand split. I always thought that would have been the best, Um, you know, again, hindsight being 2020. I think that would have been like the better thing to do is to be like, not everyone is going to show up on every single show every week, but there's not this split as far as these people only on Raw, these people only on SmackDown. It's like you could primarily have these people on SmackDown and these people on Raw, but you don't have to set these rules about who could show up and when. And, you know, if you go into raw knowing, well, technically speaking, anybody could show up any day. um, You know, that might enhance the show a little bit.
0: So you you talked about triple H earlier in his uh, booker T angle at WrestleMania 19. And that's probably the era where fans started to first hear the narrative or read the narrative online. Oh, triple H is politicking and he's this political animal. And you were involved you know, in all of those stories, did you ever get the vibe that, you know, Hunter had aspirations beyond the ring that he wanted to be a player behind the scenes? Did you remember him inserting himself creatively and whatnot?
2: Well, look, he was always, um, you know, he he is a, he is a student of the game, no pun intended. Um, He was at the production meetings, you know, before I started and after I started, and I don't think it was to quote unquote protect his spot You know, I think he he did have those aspirations and he just was a huge, huge, huge fan of the business and all aspects of the show. Um, You know, there would be. um, You know, I remember like there was a period of time where, uh, you know, talent got a little like, hey, how come he gets to go and no one else gets to go? And then, you know, Triple H was like, all right, you guys should go, too. I'm not telling you not to go. And Vince was like, yeah, if you're if you want to show up you know, in terms of like main event talent show up to the production meeting and there'd be production meetings. I'd see Hunter, I'd see Regal, I'd see Jericho, I'd see Shawn Michaels. i would see like a lot of people. Um, sometimes I'd ask rock like, Hey rock, uh, you know, you want to go to this production meeting? And he'd be like, um, you know what? With all due respect, I don't really, I don't need to sit there for three hours to find out if Funaki's going over on a Sunday night heat match. You'll be good without me. Um, so yeah, there was like, it's, it was always a challenge. Um, and that's the irony of right now is that I think in 2002, you would say if Triple H was in charge of creative, you know, it would be everyone's worst nightmare because yeah. he's so entrenched in it. And, you know, everything is kind of filtered through him. And the big obvious difference is that he was a character on the show. Then uh, he's not a character on the show now. And anytime you're a character on the show, you could try to put your best interests and your self-interest aside, but it's going to be affected by it one way or another. Um, so, you know, like Triple H now, I think is, you know, to be in charge of creative, I think is awesome because he has so many great ideas. He is he is passionate and loves the business uh, as much as anyone I've ever seen. And he doesn't have the, you know, the onus of being like, well, even though I'm trying to be neutral about it and I've done my share of jobs, et cetera, et cetera. How will this affect my character? Um, you know, all of that's lifted. So that's really great in 2022. In 2002, yeah, there was there was like a period of time where there would be like, you know, we'd come out of a creative meeting with Vince. There would be Triple H, you know, his storyline that would need to be pitched to him. And, you know, he would not like it. Um, and a lot of times he was justified for not liking it. <laughs> um, a lot of times I thought he should do it. Um, and then there was always that like, well, I'm sure they'll discuss it at some family function over the weekend. And I was told, no, no, they don't talk business at these functions. So I'm like, so when are we going to talk about this? Like literally the shows on Monday, like, well, we'll figure it out. So that was pretty nerve wracking, um, for a while, but you know, there were there, there's no one, I don't think, you know, who is as passionate about the business and WWE in general, um, than Paul Beck. So, you know, it's really cool to see him now. Um, you know, being able to, uh, you know, kind of lead the creative vision on these shows and, you know, based on what I've seen, it, it, it is noticeable and it is a noticeable change. So I'm kind of curious to see where it goes. Yeah.
0: One of the noticeable changes it feels like, uh, is we're embracing wrestling history a little more, you know, as you and I are recording this this past week on raw, we saw like the history of the U S title and we saw Chompa come out and the old Harley race entrance robe. And it, just a nod to the history. And it feels like some of the maybe quirky things that Vince didn't want on TV. We fans have heard. He doesn't like the word hospital. He prefers medical facility and it's not a belt. It's a championship. Do you remember being introduced to some of these quirks from Vince McMahon? How many of them made sense? And how many of them did you just say? doesn't make any sense to me, but he's the boss.
2: Um, most of them, to be honest, um, you know, I remember, yeah, I mean, I can remember, like, we'll have this guy feuding with this guy, and it's like, uh, we don't feud here, okay? This isn't the Beverly Hillbillies where there's a fussing and a feuding. Um, You know, we, we, I know, I definitely disagreed. You know, it became so entrenched in just, like, wrestling language. Like, I got a title shot. I want a title match. And, you know, just Vince found that to be, you know, kind of like, I don't know, kind of just... Almost disrespectful to the magnitude of the championship. So there's degrees where you'd be like, you know, yeah, I don't call it a shot. Like I get my title shot. Well, then what is it? It's a championship opportunity. I'm oh. like, okay, well, that works when, you know, you're a press agent or, yeah, so. or uh, the manager of a franchise or something saying, you know, we very much look forward to this championship opportunity that is going to take place. But when you're one wrestler talking to another wrestler, and if I win that match and I face you in the ring, once I've got my championship opportunity, you know, it just sounds so um, fake, which is another word that you're not supposed to say. Yeah. It just sounds like, like you're immediately, I am watching a, you know, a very, very heavily edited scripted television show when you hear that, because people just yeah. don't talk like that. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's another word for shot that you can use, but I don't. you know, as a fan, I never really felt like if someone says, I want my title shot that you're like, ah, this is degrading to the, the championship process. But there's another thing where, as I'm sure Bruce has said many, many, many times, you got to pick what hill to die on. And if there's a hill to be dying on, uh, it's certainly not going to be shot versus championship opportunity. I'm going to pick something else. Um, Because I don't care that much. It's like your show. You want to call it that you want everyone to sound like, um, you know, something out of Stepford wives. Well, so be it.
0: Let's talk about something you said earlier. You, You mentioned, you know, that Paul Heyman at this point in his career probably doesn't have to go through the usual process for his promos. He's probably not being scripted word for word. You sort of gave a great example about title shot and championship opportunity. Online, there's been a narrative for a long time that wrestling fans hate scripted promos. They just want guys to do it like they used to and and use bullet points. But I heard a great explanation many years ago from Triple H at some panel discussion where he said, no, fans don't hate scripted promos. They hate bad promos. They like it when it's good. And unfortunately, a lot of guys these days, didn't come up in an era where they were doing these localized promos every week for hours on end. So they just don't have the skill set to just be able to do it right off the top of their head. And sometimes scripted stuff that is word for word fans love, they just don't know it's scripted. And that felt like maybe, uh, Hey, you guys love the rock, but his stuff was probably scripted. So I understand what he was saying about, you don't care really if it's bullet points or if it's scripted, you just want it to be good, but you were there writing for a lot of these guys and that probably evolved as you were there, where maybe it did go from more bullet points to more scripted. What do you remember about the transition and do you think it's necessary? Do you think we could ever get to a point where it's not scripted word for word with now Hunter's new regime, if you will?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great point that Triple H made, because like to me, one of the greatest whenever I go online uh, after a show and just sort of like, you know, try to gauge fan comments. One of the greatest compliments any writer can get, much less me, is when you, you read someone commenting on a promo and they go, well, that clearly was not no help from writers on that one. Um, that's the reason why there shouldn't be writers in WWE. And you wrote it or at least you contributed to it. And you go, Oh, well, thank you. Cle- the, clearly that couldn't have been done by the WWE writers it was always like the biggest compliment to a WWE writer because chances are they worked on it. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always, look, I've always felt when you say script, like rock has, has, has worked a lot of scripted promos. He, he kind of, you know, he, he's a great improviser and he's improvised a lot in, especially in the ring. Um, but like, I like to tell people I've never written a rock promo in my life. Um, And what I mean by that is I've never handed him a piece of paper and said, here it is. Uh, Good luck with it. Goodbye. It's always been a collaborative process. It's always been he has written just as much, you know, if not more of the promo than I have. It's always been getting with him, um, talking about the promo, talking about what point you want to make, what what is going to helpfully sell tickets, what is going to get the big pop from the crowd Uh, and putting it all together And, you know, it's not exclusive to him either. You know, I've done that with uh, Jericho and Kurt and Edge and Christian and Trish and Mickey and lots of people um, that you, you know, to me, that's the that's the sweet spot. Being able to sit down with the talent, get them, you know, get their voice in it, get them invested in it. Um, And a lot of that has to do with and it's not really talked about much, um, you know, at least as far as my experience is concerned, um, the biggest enemy. I I always found is time because in my opinion, I always felt that the production meetings started too late, finished too late. And then when they're finally finished and you're running around trying to get with talent to write their shows and write their promos and stuff, and they have their matches to go over as well. And the show was going on the air, you know, the clock is ticking down and they also have backstage vignettes and it's like time is running out versus you know, if the production meetings were earlier or if the scripts were finalized earlier or what have you, um, then it would be a lot, you know, a simpler process to get with talent and, you know, get their input and write things. I think a lot of it, especially then when it evolved to the point of like, okay, now that it's written, it used to be now that it's written, go out and do it. Then it became now that it's written, you need to get it approved. So you have this weird like doctor's waiting room office, you know, outside of Vince's door as the show, the minutes are ticking down with producers wanting to go through their finishes and their matches, uh, talents who have questions about the angles that they're in, writers who are trying to get promos approved and all of that. Um, and it was a funnel and it was, you know, it's kind of difficult to the point where certain talents are just like, God, you know what? If it's approved, just give me this. I'll say it. I, I'm not going to be happy about it. Or give me it. I love it. It's great. Um, but the, you know, to have more time, You know, that really, you know, for me was always helpful to be able to sit down with multiple performers throughout the day and truly, truly write these things together, Um, because that's what writers are in WWE. They're there to help the talent. They're there to help the talent get over as best as they can. It's not it's never there's not there have been far and few between writers in WWE and my tenure there who were like, here it is. This is it. Don't even think of changing it because A, Vince approved it and B, I wrote it. So therefore, it's great. Um, that's a setup for disaster. Um, you really, really, you know, I I can't remember the amount of times, you know, John Cena would burst into the writer's room and be like, all right, what do we got? And sit down and, you know, literally put the promo together from scratch, you know, with a writer in tow to just bounce ideas off of and get it all down, then work on his match, then come back, look it over again, and then go out and do it. You know, to me, that, is always the best formula. And it wasn't always, you know, eventually as, as, you know, the PG era and being cognizant of, you know, the the publicly traded company aspect of it. Um, There might've been an incident in Madison Square Garden once when Rick Flair went off script that uh, got Vince a little heated about what he had said uh, and said, damn it, from then on, I need to uh, know what every single talent is going to be saying coming out there. That certainly didn't help. God bless Rick. That <laughs> uh,
0: was about making virgins bleed.
2: Oh yes, I'm glad you had you said it and didn't make me have to say it. But yeah, that was in Madison Square Garden uh, with lots of corporate sponsors and what have you. Uh, and when he said that, yeah, there was a um, there was a noticeable shift in the amount of uh, the approval process growing from that point, and it took a while for it to wane.
0: So I do want to ask about you know, this, this narrative that's out there because there is this sort of old school approach to, uh, quote unquote booking, you know, a lot of the old school wrestling fans and, and, and talking heads, they don't like the word writers. They don't like the process. They prefer it to be, you know, we we don't need writers. We need bookers. Uh, and I understand that that is maybe of a bygone era though. And one of the other things that's often said in that same frame or tone is funny. Don't draw money. And you're a guy who wrote some of the most hilarious moments in WWE history that people still celebrate and still get excited about. And some of the highest rated segments in company history were comedic. Um, where do you land on that funny? Don't draw money argument.
2: Well, there's uh, ironically an entire chapter dedicated to that (laughs) in the, uh, in the book coming out. And yeah, look, um, here's where I stand. Um, I think I think talent draws money, and you obviously have guys like Rock and Mick Foley, Kurt Angle, Chris Jericho, um, you know those are just the names that come to mind, um, that you know Booker, who, who could be hilarious, um, and that enhances their characters in a way, and just makes it more of like if you, if you're watching, to me, you know, if everything is life and death and um, you know absolutely serious. You know, in the days of at least, again, from a WWE prism, uh, you know, superstars and Saturday night's main event and four pay-per-views a year, you know, you could kind of get away with that a little bit. Then in the era of like literally hours upon hours upon hours of TV every single week, I I think you have to have some entertainment and some levity and be able to, uh, you know, just just sit back and enjoy it. Um, You know, like, look, Stone Cold Steve Austin is is the biggest money drawing, you know, entity and in, in person in WWE history. Um, him dressing up as a doctor and I'll take it from here, nurse, and hitting Vince with a bedpan. It's fucking funny yes. and hilarious. And in and and made his, you know, his rivalry with Vince, if you look at it, you know, objectively, there were a lot of just pure laugh-out loud moments from that. Yeah, uh, And I thought it like really, you know, it certainly caught my eye as a fan and and trying to contribute to that as well. You know, once I joined, um, you know, I think if done right. Okay. Like if, if, if the title becomes a joke and everything becomes a joke and no one's taking what they're doing seriously and everyone's like, you know, doing the proverbial wink into the camera um, that's no good either because then, you know, you have to have stakes and you have to have these angles and these characters, you know, serious about what they're after and mean something. But if you could create, let's like writing a promo, you know, it's like you create the right balance where there's entertainment, there's some stuff that's funny, there's some stuff that's serious. Um, You know, like like with Jericho, when he was in his, you know, like talking very softly and wearing a suit and being very, very, you know, using long vocabulary words, um, that's a very serious character. But we were able to put him, you know, shirtless staring down Bob Barker as well uh, and, and, and Shaquille O'Neal and, and, and lots of other people um, because he was so multifaceted and was able to pull those things off and it's not so predictable and not like just one note. So, you know, and obviously, you know, the rock has proven funny is he does equal money when it comes to him and serious does equal money and talent does equal money. So I think a lot of it depends, you know, it's like, I'm going to write about this. When, when, when I started working with Edge and Christian, I got into debates with a lot of people saying, you know, you're turning them to comedy characters. They're never going to draw money that way. Um, and I'm just like, you know, again, not said not at this <laughs> level of hindsight 20 years later, but like it's like, yes, no one's saying that these are going to be their personas for the rest of their life. But in the moment right now, during the five second pose era, prior to that, they weren't saying anything. And Christian, you know, they were the, the the vampire guys and then they were the great match guys. And then, you know, being able to inject a little bit of wise assery into their characters uh, and getting them confidence in cutting promos. I think that set the groundwork and, and, and the set the table for when they were ready to do main event angles, whether it was, you know, Edge and Cena or Christian and Randy Orton and, and all the stuff that they're doing now. Um you know, if they if, if if we weren't given that opportunity to have some fun and let their personalities come out, um, you know, and just stop it right then and there, because funny don't equal money, um, they never would have become the performers that they would eventually become. So that's that's my take on it.
0: Well, we know Rock went on to become the biggest star in the history of wrestling and, and now in Hollywood and movies and so on and so forth. When did you know, hey, man, this this guy's got something special beyond wwe did you know that right away or through the process of working with him or do you remember there being like an aha moment for you in that regard
2: i mean i when i so i started working with rock you know technically in july of 99 on the mtv specials officially in november 99 and you know to me it wasn't like aha this guy's going to be a movie star because you know it's the same way he probably felt too which is like that never entered the conversation it just wasn't a thing back you know he had acted on some uh he had acted on like deep space 9 i think and that 70s show and the net um but you know he, he hadn't really it hadn't really hit anyone and and i think he would be the same to say this um i, I kind of took note at around the same time that you know almost everyone in hollywood took note and that's when he hosted snl in um in 2000 right before wrestlemania 2000 um to where like he insisted on, like, hey, I'm up for anything. I truly, truly, truly prefer not to play a wrestler in some sketches, in any sketches. I'd like to do anything but that. Um, and obviously, he play himself in the monologue and everything, and interact with Mick and Hunter and, and Big Show. But if you look at the show, we he didn't do any. He hosts. He's hosted five times. He hasn't done. He hadn't done any wrestling wrestling sketches on that show until. We proposed a wrestling sketch, which, you know, I write about and was super, super, super thankful that, you know, SNL Mm. um, accepted the concept and and put it forward, which was, you know, the uh, wrestler getting too personal with promos uh, that he did with Bobby Moynihan twice. That was, you know, just so, you know, that's one of like the most electrifying things I've ever seen, you know, come to fruition. But, you know, back then it was, you know, after SNL and everything else, when you heard he's going to go off to uh, do a quick cameo and the mummy returns, you know, that's when you said, Oh yeah, of course he would. Why wouldn't someone want him to do that? And then when you found out he was going to be the lead in his own movie, the Scorpion King, it's just like, you're nonplussed. You're like, yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, But it was, yeah, it was one of those things when I started working with him, you know, July 99, I certainly didn't think this was going to be the next movie star, but when all that stuff came to fruition, um, none of us were surprised. It, It all seemed to track.
0: So, so everybody knows. Of course, we're spending a lot of time talking about the the wrestling aspect of your life. Uh, what are you up to these days, sort of post WWE?
2: So, uh, I work I'm, I'm SVP of of development for Seven Bucks Productions, which is the production company of Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia, and it's uh, been pretty cool. I mean, to be able to transition from the world of wrestling to television development because. We're out there, you know, pitching shows, creating shows, producing shows. Um, you know, we're on our third season coming up A Young Rock. Um, that's been a thrill to be able to be one of the producers on that show and being able to actually write an episode along with Dwayne and Hiram Garcia, the president of the company uh, last year. And, and that episode was, you know, and, and there's a reason why we wrote that episode. We really we practically <laughs> insisted on writing it. It was about the Rock's first match. Um, His first dark match in Corpus Christi and meeting Stone Cold and Triple H and 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 the Undertaker and Mankind and everything. Um, It's pretty surreal to to now that we have a Michael Hayes character. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and we had a um, let's just say um, low key Bruce Pritchard character.
0: Very much.
2: We might, we might expand that role a little bit. It's uh, we were working with a lot of Australian uh, actors and a lot of American actors. I don't know. Bruce uh, he had his moment uh, and, and it's all true, by the way, picking like this uh, bad entrance music for Dwayne when he uh, first made his debut. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We, we were producing a ton of shows, but wrestling's in our DNA uh, you know, which is why Young Rock, you know, we're so passionate about um, just announced Tales from the Territories, which is us teaming up with uh, Evan Hunsey and, and Jason Eisner from Dark Side of the Ring to, uh, you know, team up with Vice and come up with this. I, I think, Conrad, this might be your new favorite show, maybe I, Tales from the Territories. I
0: love it. I'm all about it. I haven't seen any early cuts, but when, when they when Evan and and, and um, well, I guess I talked to Evan and talked to Jason when he first yeah. laid out the idea. And, you know, as as with, with the previous seasons, he goes, hey, hypothetically, do you know how to get a hold of so-and-so? So <laughs> I was able to sort of connect some of the dots, and I was like, well, this is going to be different. So I'm pretty pumped about that. And that comes out in October, right?
2: Yeah, October 4th. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, October 4th for Tales from the Territory, uh, Tales from the Territories. And November 4th for Season 3 of of Young Rock, which wow. is is definitely... You know, a challenge because you know the previous seasons we came out in March and we came out in January. Now we're coming out November fourth. We are we are shooting this season in Memphis this year, uh, which is exciting as opposed to Australia, which was the previous two seasons. Um, so yeah, that's great. I can go I can go home for Thanksgiving, which we Jews celebrate, as has been established. So that's <laughs> nice in the December holidays hopefully some uh, post-season baseball too. So yeah, it's um, and just in general, being able to, you know, not be on a, whatever it is, 18 hour time difference to do other stuff. Um, but yeah, we have like a lot of shows, you know, in development, some on the air behind the attraction on Disney plus right now is one of my favorites. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll always, you know, have a special place in our heart for wrestling content and, there may be more wrestling content coming out in the future. Who knows? We'll see.
0: Stay tuned. I'm pumped about that. Of course, we're talking about There's Just One Problem, Brian's brand-new book. It's available now. By all means, please support that local business. Go to your, your local bookstore and check it out. If you can't find a local bookstore because they're few and far between these days, do what everybody else does and go to Amazon. It's uh, There was just one problem. I, I want to let you out of here, but first, I, I do have a few more questions, including... Hey, when you finally get off the crazy train of WWE, it's been this pressure cooker for years and years and years, over a decade, same day changes, you know, Paul Heyman famously said a lot of times writing television for an audience of one. And now you've got all this crazy travel that maybe doesn't exist now, but certainly did back then. Burnout had to be real. When did you first burn out? And then what ultimately made you say, okay, I got to I got to close this chapter in my life. Was it the pressure of the environment? Was it the travel? Combination of both? Or was it just hey man, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them?
2: Probably a combination of all of them. Like the burnout is real. Like I you know, I a lot of people have said to me, you know, ex-writers especially, like, I don't know how you did it as long as you did it. And there are people there who've done it now longer than me. Um, you know, you it's really you have to have this certain fire inside of you to want to continue to do it. And when the fire goes from like, I'm like super, super excited about, you know, our next show and being able to do something to (laughs) times I'd be sitting in catering day of SmackDown, uh, eating a bowl of lucky charms going, this is going to be the happiest I'm going to be all day for the rest of the day. Um, you know, when that fire goes out, that's when, you know, as Vince would always say, if you're not happy doing something, don't do it anymore. Um, you know, which is why I didn't have you know, trouble with, with people wanting to leave, you know, in any aspect of the company. Um, you know, for me, I tried to keep that fire going as long as I could. You know, it's one of the reasons why I proposed uh, this home team, away team, writing team uh, formula back in whatever it was, 2011, uh, 2012 which, you know, I don't think they do now. They don't need to do now because, you know, they have individual writers for both Raw and SmackDown and the shows are four days apart. Mm -hmm. Um, But back then it was to, you know, in part to get ahead on scripts and being able to, you know, in theory have scripts written by the time the people on the road come back. Um, But from a personal standpoint, it was because like, I'm just over it. I'm over being on the road I'm over, you know, the planes and the travel and the hotel. And I'm not even taking physical bumps like the wrestlers might be taking mental bumps. But, um, you know, to me, it was just like, you know, it had been 10, 12, whatever it was, 10 to 12 consecutive years. Um, there were times where I, you know, WWE's being very accommodating and saying you don't have to go to SmackDown. And I only went to Raw. There were times where I was going to both shows. Um, but once that fire was out where it now it was like a job as opposed to something like I truly, truly loved. Um, then, like a part of me was like, uh, I'm in this very weird situation. I've been away from Hollywood for too long to go back, and it's not like I'm going to be like, "Hey, everybody, I'm back." There'd it, be crickets. Nobody cares. You've been, you haven't written on a show since 1999. Uh, now it's 2010. <laughs> like, you, you it's you dropped off the face of the earth. Um, but at the same time, you know, like, hey, I like working. I do like the people I work with. I like the security of the salary and insurance and everything else. Um, but at the same time, I don't think this is sustainable. Um, so yeah, probably, probably around. I mean, it worked out fortuitously because in 2012 I had burnt out, maybe WWE had sensed that as well. And, you know, we were able to, and it's again, we detail in much more depth, the uh, exit process, but I was able to work something out with them that allowed me to, um, to consult be a a consultant for what ended up being three years while I worked part-time at seven bucks. And then when the time was right in 2015, um, completely uh, you know, do a nice clean exit from WWE and go full-time to seven bucks.
0: So the travel was a, a hell of a grind, but I'm sure there's at least one funny road story you can share with us, whether it's in a car or it's on the jet. Do you have a favorite traveling story you can share with us?
2: Well, let's see. Well, yeah, I mean, travel is one of it, but just the grind and just the never ending process of having to churn out the scripts over and over and over again. Um, I'm trying, you know, again, <laughs> I always get asked these questions that make perfect sense that I come up with a perfect answer for. Um, I-, I do remember this isn't a particularly good story, but <laughs> I do remember like no one would ever let me drive when we would drive between towns because while I don't have the ability anymore to sleep on planes, um, behind the wheel of a car, I'd fall asleep within five minutes or at least do the, you know, and, and it was, you know, it was very jarring for the person riding with me (laughs) to when that happened, which is why I often didn't, there was a time where I think it was after it was in Edmonton, um, I, or, or Calgary, or, or, or somewhere in Canada, where uh, Foley and Orton had their big hardcore match, right? Um, and they had to go to Raw the next day, and normally they would be traveling. And you know, not some magna- magna- magnanimous gesture on my part, but I said, you know, these guys should really be on the plane. They shouldn't have to. After every that thumbtacks and everything they went through, they shouldn't have to, uh, you know, drive. So I like just you know took myself off the plane. And I said, you know what? Not only am I going to be off the plane, Ed Koski, I'm going to drive with you. I'm going to drive, physically drive from Calgary to Edmonton in the dead of the night. I don't care. Everyone else does it. I should be able to do it. And we got in the car. And according to Ed, I was like driving. And then it was like, oh, my God, what is that? Um, And he's like, what? There's what are you talking about? I'm like, Ed, you did not see that flying bat like creature swoop down and almost you know literally swoop up right in front of our car and he's like pull over i am never driving with you in a car again i'll drive from here on out um and yeah i swear i saw a flying bat-like creature because it wasn't a bat but it was bat-like um that swooped down in front of me ed looked like us like like we were crazy um and yeah, from that moment I, w- I was barred from driving. Um, there, a, there was a whole other thing where where Ed and I and Dave Kapoor were trying to tra- we were doing a house show loop and trying to travel between Reno and Sacramento, uh, and everyone was like, "There's going to be a snowstorm. You better leave the night before." I'm like, nah, we want to gamble here in Reno. We'll be fine." And yeah, we got stuck uh, on a bridge that wasn't the supposed that was open and closing and stayed open in the snow. We were idiots who didn't know how to apply snow tires. Uh, We had to like ask people to help us. We there was nowhere to go. I think there was a lot of urinating in milk cartons that we had gotten, you know, at a convenience store earlier. Um, Just like city slicker, completely helpless. Um, And we missed the show, too. Um, But that was like one of those times, you know, I'll perfect the story long after this podcast. But (laughs) those were a couple of things that come to mind offhand.
0: Uh, of course, I know you. Uh, first met you for our, through our mutual friend Bruce Pritchard. I'm sure you've got a great Bruce Pritchard story that the world has never heard. Do you have a super embarrassing Bruce Pritchard story we can share?
2: Man, I I should have. We should have. Uh, <laughs> I should have thought about this beforehand. Is there one that you have in mind that that if you could give me the Iggy and prompt me, or is there? Uh...
0: I don't know one off the top of my head because I feel like he's. He's fallen on his sword quite a bit on something to wrestle and, and, and been pretty honest uh, with the exception of stealing some of your stories. Um, yes. So if you think of a great Bruce story, I, I do want you to drop that on us. But in the meantime, while you're processing that, yeah, I want to mention somebody else who I feel like gets a bad rap and that's Mr. Kevin Dunn. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, Kevin, I, I've had, I don't know, two dozen interactions with him. He's been fantastic each time. But there's a lot of folks who, you know, have opinions and comment online who think that, you know, his style of WWE TV is passe and it's not fun. And I mean, he even gets the finger pointed at him for a lot of the quick cuts. And I don't think the folks who are saying that understand that's not really his job. That's what someone else does. But either way, do you have any good Kevin Dunn stories you can share with us? Because we just hear of him as almost this Oz like man behind the curtain figure, you know, we never saw his television persona like we did with Bruce Pritchard or Vince McMahon. He's always kind of the guy behind the guy. What was your experience like with Kevin?
2: Well, like the only Kevin Dunn story that I I put in the book and it just, you know, it's really more Vince um, than Kevin, but I'll I'll just never forget. Like when we were in Vegas once uh, and we were, you know, it was one of the rare, rare times where we were like hanging out socially and stuff. Um, And, as we were passing a blackjack table, Vince just casually pulled out a thousand dollars, gave it to Kevin and said, see what you could do with this pal. And Kevin put five, you know, it was a $500 table. There was no one else there. So it was one-on-one and Kevin uh, put down, you know, 500. I think he got like dealt a horrible hand, like 15, he busted. Uh, And then he, uh, you know, the second hand put a 20, got got 22 Queens or whatever. And then the dealer like gave himself like a, Six and eight and a seven, or something like that, um and Vince had a very, very good laugh about that, and you know, I don't think Kevin was pleased, but he wasn't freaking out or anything. It wasn't his money, but I just remember just like the you know because especially now with sports bets being legal here uh in New York, like I agonize over like you know he didn't hit his strikeout prop, I just lost fifteen dollars, my god. Um, <laughs> You know, just being in, like, like how do you know, sell losing a thousand bucks like that? Yeah. That would, that would have been, like, that would have been the trauma gambling story that I would take with me easily for the next 20, 30 years if that happened to me. And that was just like, yeah, just another, you know, just another wacky adventure late at night in uh, WWE land. So I always was pretty fascinated that the uh, that there wasn't a bigger sell. But he is the king of no sell, so... Um, you know there you have it
0: i uh, i'd be remiss if i didn't at least bring it up uh these days the tribalism is out of hand online have you even had a chance to see any aew and if so what do you think
2: i've seen it um i've seen it in 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 bunches you know um i've seen it a lot of it on twitter highlights um you know and i think it's cool it's it's again like there's so many hours in the day I don't have as much time really to, especially when I was in Australia for two seasons, five and a half months um, to watch shows. But I'll have a lot of friends over there. Uh, I'm a big fan of MJF. Um, I'm a big fan, obviously, of Jericho and uh, and Punk and Daniel Bryan and Christian, Big Show, uh, all the people, you know, previous. And yeah, I mean, look, I don't really have much interesting to say about it because I don't like watch it, like diehard watch it. But I'm certainly not like, you know, boo AEW, yay WWE. I like them, you know, both fine. Um, and, you know, I, I can't really speak to it all that much because I don't watch it that much. Um, I did, I did, uh, you know, I, I do have, like I said, friends, a couple of them, you know, again, literally like maybe twice ever called me and said, hey, what's a line I could say for this type of thing? You have any ideas? And I threw some out and some of them got used. So technically, very technically, There's a line or two of mine in the uh, AEW pantheon of television shows over the years. But um, you know, overall it's like, I love that. It's, you know, the thing I love about it most is that it's noticeably different uh, from WWE and that you're not going to confuse one for the other, that there's a different, it's different tonally. It's different, you know, in terms of the way it's shot, different action wise, obviously different characters. So yeah, man, like keep doing what you're doing um, because you know, it's always better. We all know it's always better when there's, you know, competition, even yeah. if it's not head to head, um, and, and conflict and that type of stuff.
0: Well, of course, back in the day when you first joined the company, I think a lot of people assumed, hey, one day, you know, Shane's gonna be a big part, and now we know really it's gonna wind up being, or so it feels at least now. Hunter and Stephanie are sort of gonna be the the heirs, the successors to the, the legacy Vince McMahon left. Uh were you surprised that Shane tried his hand outside of the wrestling bubble
2: no i'm not I'm not surprised at that i mean shane is you know very much you know has an entrepreneurial spirit um always liking to try new stuff and 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 never one and and none of the, the mcmahon's are really one to rest on their laurels and say you know i've got my money i've got my you know uh fortune or what have you um and i'll just sit back and enjoy you know time at the pool or something like he's always been a very on the go type of guy, always been wanting to, uh, you know, show, put forth and show the world what he could do. You know, I think you see that in his um, in his matches where it had been very easy to be like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, you know, a kendo stick shot or something like that. Um, that's not been his thing. His, it's like, what is the biggest, craziest, um, wacko bump i could take that will get fans talking because that's at the end of the day that's what it's all about so um you know and even in in rehearsing and doing the van daminator and like all that kind of stuff um whatever the coast-to-coast one is called i forget but yeah i think um i think it's really cool i'd I like to see what you know the future holds
0: well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this one up but i do want to uh, put a bow on it a if you have a bruce pritchard uh story and b You know, we we know what you've done, but hypothetically, is there one idea that you fought for that didn't happen? But if it did, it would have changed the course of history like this would have changed everything had it happened, but it didn't.
2: So I was I've been asked about this, too. And for the longest time, I couldn't think of anything. And then it did hit me. I, I do remember. And again, this was all within the confines of a writer's meeting with Vince. So there was some, you know, substance to it but there was like in between the Jindrak Orton phase of evolution, we were thinking of people who can potentially join evolution. And I do remember one name that was brought up as a potential, like, okay, we want the two veterans in Flare Hunter, two young guys. uh, And one of them was a guy named John Cena. Um, And again, it was tossed about, I think the term was, (laughs) You know, he's a little too goofy uh, to join this group that's supposed to be a lot more serious and that type of thing. Um, you know, I thought it was a good idea at the time. I think Randy was the, ended up being the perfect choice. But, you know, thinking about it, if, if John Cena had joined Evolution, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the after effect and the uh, chain reaction that would have done in terms of so many people's trajectory, um, you know, is something that is you know, very, very cool to ponder and think about in a what if scenario.
0: This has been a fantastic interview. I can't thank you enough for the time. I hope everyone goes out and picks up. There's just one problem. It's available Tuesday, August 16th. Uh, Please check your local bookstore, support those small businesses. But if you don't have one in your area, Amazon's got you covered. There's just one problem is available Tuesday, August 16th. I also want to remind everybody, You can keep up with everything else that Brian's doing tales from the territories, which I think is going to be something everyone enjoys. If you like dark side of the ring, you're going to love tales from the territory. It comes out October 4th. And then just one month later, young rock is back, man. Season three. Congrats. November 4th, young rock on NBC tales from the territory on vice on October 4th and everywhere you enjoy books. There's just one problem. August 16th, man. Thank you so much for the time. Really sincerely. Thank you enough for this. This was so fun. I can't wait till you write another book and you feel forced to come talk to me again because this was well, be great.
2: Thank you, Conrad. And let's not wait for another book. Let's do one you know, sometime around those shows. And my promise to you is I will have at least one good Bruce story by then. I'll probably have it five minutes after we sign off, but <laughs> we'll definitely have it you know by the time we come on the air again.
0: The more embarrassing, the better. Check it out. <laughs> There's just one problem. And these are true tales from the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE. It's available everywhere. Tuesday, August 16th. Check your local bookstores, check Amazon and stay tuned for more, man. Coming your way. October 4th, Tales from the Territories. Young Rock, just one month later. Thanks again, Brian, for all the time.
2: Thanks, Conrad. It was fun.